gentlemen, boys and girls, monster kids of all ages, welcome to episode 392 of the podcast Monster Kid Radio, the podcast where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to this week's show. Now, I know last week I said I was going to play a particular song by a particular band. Well, while I was putting together this week's episode, I was actually contacted by another band that's been on the show before. The band is called The Slop Tones, and they're based out of St. Petersburg over in the Russian Federation. Well, they've got a number of albums available over at sloptones.bandcamp.com. Well, they told me that they've been working real hard to get a song done by Halloween, and that's the song we're playing this week. Guess what? You can't hear this song anywhere else right now. As of right now, it's not available. You're going to hear it here in this episode in its entirety at the end of the show, but you can check out the rest of the Slop Tones music. Again, it's sloptones.bandcamp.com. Big thanks to the Slop Tones for making that available to us here on Monster Kid Radio. Check them out and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. What's happening this week on the show? Well, I know I mentioned this a few days ago. I had grand plans for what was going to happen this week because it's kind of the last episode before Halloween, but... I'm not feeling great. I mean, I'm feeling better today than I was yesterday, but I'm not 100%. And because I've got a number of things coming up in just a couple of days, and then of course the virtual Monster Kid Radio crash, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit, you know, I gotta get healthy. So, with apologies to Craig Scott Lamb, the conversation that I had with him about his movie, Dracula's Ghost, is gonna get pushed back till sometime in November. This week, you're still getting a conversation about a movie that I am so thrilled have talked about here on the show because it is so good. It's 1933's The Vampire Bat. I watched the Blu-ray that was released last year and then I talked about it with my friend Paul Curtis. Paul is a Facebook friend of mine and we've been talking about having him here on the show for years. I'm glad we finally made it happen with this movie. Now, of course, before that segment, you're going to hear Kenny's segment, the Famous Monsters of Filmland segment, about the vampire bat and how it appeared in Famous Monsters, as well as a little bit of history about Famous Monsters and why some of the numbering at one point in the issues got a little screwy. It's really interesting, fascinating. Big thanks to Kenny for sending that in. Also, big thanks to everybody who sent in feedback. I've got a couple of voicemails that I'm going to go over uh, on my own, and then I'm going to have Brenda come in and we're going to do some emails as well. Like I said, I'll talk about the virtual crash and a couple of other things and that's all happening right after this from haiti land of the voodoo the most infamous cult of all, Bela Lugosi as Murder Legendre, I see master of the undead damned, the sinister power behind the white zombie. Zombie? This soul killer takes men from their graves to be his slaves. His instruments of terror, and now this fiend plots to possess a woman. 
white dog. Or perhaps a flower. Keep it, monsieur. Keep it. You may change your mind. Not dead. Are you mad? I saw her die. The doctor signed a certificate. I saw them bury her. Captive in the borderland between life and death. Her brain drained of the life spark. The white zombie obeys the unholy commands of her demon master. As mindless creatures carry out his cursed will, terror explodes in horror and heartquake. Zombie! Halabi! Halabi! Never eyes so evil, never powers so potent, never magic so black, Bela Dracula Lugosi, as the master of the white zombie. Mary, no! God! Let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If you're happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. Do you believe in ghosts? This is the night when fear and horror walk hand in hand. This is Black Sabbath. Starring the incomparable Boris Karloff, the personable Mark Damon, and lush and lovely women, even though one is from the netherworld, a vampire, a Vordalak. Black Sabbath, as ancient a superstition, as modern as the telephone. How nice you look with that towel around you. You always did have a beautiful body. Beautiful. A body to drive someone crazy. Who are you? Who? Black Sabbath. The bare truth about the unbelievable, such as the brilliant beauty of a priceless jewel, that holds within the body of a buzzing fly, a vengeful woman's murderous spirit. <coughs> Only on the seventh night of the seventh full moon can the living see the lifeless undead. 
I am hungry. Is he man? Or vampire? An adventure into black magic that goes beyond the boundaries of the supernatural. And a man's devoted love is welcomed by a woman's deadly lust for his blood. Monster Kid Radioheads, this is Kenny with another look at our featured film in Famous Monsters. And today's film is The Vampire Bat from 1933. First of all, I want to take a look at its featured look in FM 99 from July 1973. The article was called Blob, Brains, and Other Gooey Objects, written by Thomas Rogers. The title explains the list of movies that are briefly described, such as The Blob, Rain from Planet Arrows and The Vampire Bat? Here's what it had to say about today's movie. Contrary to what the movie title suggested, there was no supernatural creature from the grave in The Vampire Bat. Actually, the blood-stealing murderer was none other than Lionel Atwill, playing a scientist who had created a synthetic mass of protoplasm. He needed the blood to feed his silent pet, which was, in reality, a fat sponge in a fish tank. Toward the final... Dwight Fry was chased by torch-wielding villagers and staked to death for the murders which he did not commit. Atwell did not pay for his crimes until he chose Fay Ray, the heroine of the movie, as one of his victims. In the nick of time, the hero broke up the act and destroyed both the scientist and his lazy creation. This film stars a classic monster movie actor, which was featured in Famous Monsters, Lionel Atwell, had a 12-page article dedicated to him in Monster World 1 from November of 1964. Now, Monster World was a sister magazine of Famous Monsters, a 10-issue run which ran at the same time as Famous Monsters from 64 to 66. After its 10th issue, they decided, let's just keep Famous Monsters because it was still more popular, and they started doing more Famous Monsters every year. But what they did to get closer to issue 100, that after FM 69, they decided to insert Monster World 1 through 10 into those numbers. So Monster World 1 is considered Famous Monster 70 up through 79. So FM has 69 and then it goes to 80. So that was what Monster World is about. It's basically an exact copy of Famous Monsters. And so that's where we see this article about Lionel Atwell in issue number one of Monster World. This article was later reprinted in FM 58 and in the 1971 yearbook. It featured a 77 title filmography and a description of Vampire Bat as well, which mentions co-stars Dwight Fry, Fay Ray, and Melvin Douglas. According to the article, after the Vampire Bat, he was offered a role in a big-time Broadway play but he turned it down with this comment. I've had my fill of art. It's all very well in its way, 
but there's an entirely different fascination to pictures that I haven't gotten over yet. No doubt, I never will. It may be a little childish, but the sheer mechanical ingenuity of the whole thing gets under my skin the way a mechanical toy fascinates a boy. I've been having a tremendous good time, and I don't see why I should stop. So, while many actors praise being on the live stage and how they appreciate that more than being in movies, Lionel Atwell was different. He loved being in movies. The article also mentions he had a son in the Royal Air Force who was killed during World War II. He continued acting despite this tragedy and divorce until he passed away in 1946. The article ends with this quote from his character in Vampire Bat. Mad? I, who have solved the secret of life you call mad? Life created in the laboratory? No mere crystalline growth, but tissue, living tissue, living growing tissue that moves, pulsates, and demands food for its continued growth. Ha! You shudder in horror! So did I the first time. But what are your few lies when weighed in the balance against the achievement of biological science? Think of it. I have lifted the veil. I have created life, wrested the secret of life from life. Now do you understand? From the lives of those who have gone before, I have created life. And Lionel Atwill, the maddest scientist of them all, will live again. That was our look at the vampire bat in Famous Monsters. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited monster kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. Monster Kid Radio listeners, I've got a new voice to bring to the show, but somebody who's been listening to the show for a while and has been involved in fandom, been a fan of these kinds of movies for a very long time, and I'm excited to finally get him on the show. Paul Curtis, welcome to Monster Kid Radio, sir. Hi there, I'm glad to be here. I am excited to talk about this week's movie because I've been thinking about this one for a while, and not just because it came out on Blu-ray this year, and not just, was it this year? Last year, I think. Yeah, it came out on Blu-ray recently, and not just because it was recently uh, the inspiration for a a new kind of sort of reworking of the movie under the title Dracula's Ghost, but The Vampire Bat, I mean, it's a fun neat little movie and and has a unique place in monster moviedom that I think sometimes gets overlooked. And when you told me, Paul, that you were excited about this movie, and I think you even told me you like to kind of put it in and surprise people with it, I was like, yeah, we got to talk about it on the show. We got to talk about it. People who come by my place tend to get sat down and made to watch movies that they've never seen before. Uh, And this is one of the ones I like to make people watch. Uh, Because usually... They've had the opportunity, but they never quite get around to it. And the new film detective release, which is restored, there's a few minutes in it that are not in the public domain prints. And it's been restored that way, but also they went back and did the little color inserts in one memorable scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, means they've never seen it looking like that before. The color sequences blew me away. It's it's not a full-on color scene, but there's some few moments here and there where... 
Well, we'll get to it, but it looks amazing. But you know, Paul, there's something we do with everybody we have on the show <laughs> that we got to do first. Yeah. We, we got to play a round of the Classic Five, Paul. Yeah. You ready to play? Sure. All right. You'll be tormented later with a bunch of new questions that I made up that you might want to consider for, for further future decks. Hey, I'll take it. I'll take it. It's a horrible thing that I just sit around all day and say, you know, here's a question I think would be cool. Uh, uh, you'll be subjected <laughs> to that in the near future. That'll be a lot of fun. I'm always working on new questions, and I am currently building a new core deck, Ooh. so that'll be fun, too, to, to hear from. And, and in fact, I'll probably try one or the two of the new questions on you here, Paul. But for listeners who don't know, the Classic Five, it's a card game that we have here. I've got a deck of cards here. They have questions on them, and they're all about classic monster movies. Which movie do you prefer, this or that? What would you like to see, yes or no, style questions? Some people call it a game. Some people call it a conversation starter. We call it the Classic Five. Are you ready to play, Paul? I certainly am. All right. Card number one. Question number one. Paul, what is your favorite Barbara Steele film? The Long Hair of Death. Ooh. Okay. The Long Hair of Death. Our story takes place at the end of the 15th century, a time when the powers of darkness were at their strongest, and man lived in fear of the unknown. A time when witch burning was a common occurrence. A public spectacle. The long hair of death. The long hair of death. A film that will chill your spine and keep you gripped in your seat as you watch one of the most incredible stories of all time unfold before your eyes. You will see how the curse of a dying witch comes true as a village is ravaged by the plague and a man is hounded by his conscience and driven to commit one foul murder after another as he tries to satisfy his warped ambition. unusual, unforgettable film.
miss the long hair of death. It had been discussed briefly on your show a few weeks ago, and I got the Blu-ray, and it's the gothicest thing I have ever seen. I just loved it. <laughs> also, she has she has a little more agency in Long Hair of Death. I really liked that. You know, she does. She does. I'm a sucker for black... Uh, I always but Black Sunday. That's it. Yeah, I always mix Black Sunday yeah. and Black Sabbath in my head. I know I know they're two separate movies, but the titles always merge. No, I, and I love her in that. But. Well, and they're, and they're directed by the same guy within a year of each other, so that kind of also confuses. No, Long Hair of Death. That's a good one. I haven't watched it in a while, but I've got the Blu-ray here. I should pop it in. I'd recommend it. All right, card number two. What is your favorite Karloff Lugosi Universal collaboration? That would have to be the Black Cat. Surprising no one. Well, actually, wait a minute. It's, are we judging it on the performances of the actors or whether it's a favorite movie or not? You know, it, it's your favorite, so whichever one you prefer. My favorite, despite uh, Karloff having very little to do, is Son of Frankenstein. Twenty years ago, in the barony of Frankenstein, a monster created by man stalked through the country, being and killing. In time, Frankenstein, maker of the monster, died. The monster disappeared. Now, after 20 years, the son of Frankenstein returns. And fear grips the village anew. A man tainted by the blood of his father can forget his human soul and carry on the diabolical work of the Frankenstein. As a man, I should destroy him. But as a scientist, I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life. Benson, turn on the generator. Produced on a vast scale, Universal Son of Frankenstein presents the most fearsome cast in the history of the screen. Basil Rathbone. In his heart, warm human emotions. In his mind, the monster mania. Alive. Alive, you mean? Yes, alive, but alive. I thought you said our experiments. I were... know, I know. I too thought that we failed, but we haven't. I've actually seen it walk. Karloff, rising from the past to spread new terror. Lugosi, sinister, mysterious, evil. You see that? They hanged me once. Lionel Atwill, grim hatred in his blood. One doesn't easily forget, Herr Baron. An arm torn out of the roots. Josephine Hutchinson, her young beauty a magnet to the menace around her. I hate it here, Wolf. I'm terribly afraid all the time. I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Where is this monster? Where is he? I'll stay by your side until you confess. And if you don't, I'll feed you to the villagers. I, I love Igor so much, and I think that the script is smarter than it needed to be. And... Uh, also, the fact that Willis Cooper, who was listed as screenwriter, went on to do a great sort of the radio equivalent of Twilight Zone back in the late 40s oh. uh, called Quiet, Please. And my fondness for Cooper's work uh, makes me all the fonder of Son of Frankenstein. Huh. Well, Son of Frankenstein is solid, and, and Legosi is Igor. Yeah. Top notch. I mean, it's one of his yeah. best performances. 
So no argument here. Like I said, there's no wrong answers. Compared to every other Lugosi performance, it's possible to love Igor and not remember that as the same guy that was Dracula and Volman and various other characters. It is such a different performance. I could see that. That makes sense. I mean, he buries himself on that. Yeah, it, It's not like there's anything wrong with being Bela Lugosi. No, absolutely that's, not. That's one where, where normally if you see a Lugosi performance, it's that's Lugosi playing such and such part. Igor is Igor, and it's played by Lugosi. It's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Card number three. Yep. What classic monster movie would you show as part of a double feature with the original Godzilla? Ooh. Uh, probably the first camera. Ooh, okay. Pounding across the motion picture screen comes the most terrifying monster of them all. Gamera, the Invincible. Gamera. The super monster that even the H-bomb cannot destroy. Gamera the Invincible. Gamera, consuming raw atomic power. Power to destroy entire cities. Open fire! Man's most destructive weapons have no effect on Gamera the Invincible. The mightiest nuclear weapons ever devised are powerless against Gamera the Invincible. Is humanity doomed? Will the world be destroyed? The United Nations is called to emergency session in a last desperate effort to save the world. We have one plan that we think might work. We have discussed Plan Z with the Japanese authorities, and they agree it is the best of our alternative plans. Is that correct, sir? That is so. Plan Z is hope of the world. A cast of thousands at the mercy of the most terrifying monster that ever lived. Brian Donlevy as General Arnold. Arnold. is beyond comprehension. He must be stopped now. Albert Decker as the Secretary of Defense. Will Plan Z stop Gamera? Gamera, the Invincible. It's, it's funny. One would think that a good uh, pair-up would be Godzilla and Rodan, but they're both such outstanding movies that if you pair them up, it might diminish one of them. Usually, if you're going to have a double feature, it's useful to have one be more outstanding than the other, because otherwise they both tend to get uh, diminished slightly. Okay. I think Godzilla as a film is better than Gamera, but both are great movies. They are. I think Gamera is underrated. The first Gamera doesn't get a lot of attention. It's swell. It's really good. All right, card number four. Who is your favorite mad scientist? Ooh, let me think. Uh, I, I know that one great candidate is today's discussion, but um, um, I, I would tend to say Boris Karloff because you really don't have a preconception on which way he's going to swing this time. Okay. Lionel Atwell I love, but you tend to presume that he's going to turn out to be a bad guy, which makes some of his performances surprising. But with Karloff, you really don't know. Okay. And then the final card, final question. In your mind, Paul, what is the most underrated classic monster movie? An interesting question. I mean, I suppose you could say The Vampire Bat. Well, you know, the, the sad thing is, as we'll soon discuss, I have uh, mixed feelings about the movie as a movie. Okay. But uh, let me think. Underrated? Probably Dracula's Daughter. Come 
Sandra, look at me. What do you see in my eyes? Death. Do you like jewels, Lily? This is very old and very beautiful. Please don't come any closer. I... can be broken only by me or death. I am Dracula's daughter. People barely even talk, when I was growing up anyway, people barely brought it up. It wasn't worth talking about too much. But every time I see it, I'm surprised how good it is. Mm -hmm. That would define underrated. Yeah, no, I, I think it's great. I mean, none of these are underrated around my yeah. my home. But, yeah, no, I hear you. I mean, it doesn't get a lot of attention. If there's any stray film that needs a little bit of, uh, for people, your household is, is designed to supply that uh, enthusiasm. <laughs> well, it sounds like yours is, too, if you're going to make people sit down and watch movies they've never seen before. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes to the public's advantage and sometimes to their, why are you making me watch this? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the classic five, Paul. How do you feel? Uh, much the same as before. Undiminished in my enthusiasm. There you go. There you go. One of your questions that I really loved and I love asking other people was, who should have played Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Mm. Uh, and everybody's got an opinion. Mine is Joan Crawford. <laughs> really? But you think, just the moment you think about it, you go, yeah, that could work. Huh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, huh. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, in some alternate reality, I hope that happened for somebody, because that, that could be really interesting. <laughs> If Carmen Cullen directed it, or or, uh, or William Castle, or, or somebody who's not considered a top tier director, but no matter who directed it, it would easily be worth the time it took to sit through. Yeah, that, that's my prerequisite. Was do I feel my time was wasted by this? Mm. That would not have been a waste of time. It's a big part of it, I think. But all these movies, I find something to love. So yeah, I know it's it's very hard to waste your time when it comes to old classic monster movies. It really is, especially when it's a movie that maybe not very many people have heard about or given the time of day. And and I understand why something like the Vampire Bat might not get the kind of attention that you know the Universal classics do, or or, or any other '30s monster movies from Poverty Row do that sort of thing. Or even if you like team ups of Fay Ray and Lionel Atwell. Even there, it comes in third out of a list of three. Right. Let's see. Mystery of the Wax Museum, I adore. Right. I mean, it's such a great it's film. Well, you should. Yeah, it's a wonderful movie. But, you know, the more I think about this one, and I've been thinking about it a lot because we've been talking about it a lot, you know, offline, trying to figure out a right. time to talk about it. I'm really growing to love this movie. I'm really gr growing to appreciate yeah. it for, for a number of different reasons. And, and we'll get there. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about why. Yep. Yep. Uh, when did this movie come out? 33? 33. Mystery of the Wax Museum had been completed, but Warner Brothers was still in the middle of its publicity uh, push. Okay. So they were doing the buildup. 
And in the meantime, between completion of Mystery of the Wax Museum and its release, Majestic Pictures went and did this quickie. It's not the same company, is it? No, no, it's Majestic, which was a little independent company. Uh, Warner Brothers did Dr. X and Mystery of the Wax Right. So they had the people together, and they just went in and... Well, well, having completed Wax Museum, uh, Atwell and Fay Ray were back to being available to do movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly, Fay Ray went on to her greatest publicity success with King Kong, which was a year or so later, mm-hmm. and that's RKO, along with Most Dangerous Game, which was also RKO. Which is another solid movie, and we've talked about that here on the show before. And oh, both of I mean, yeah. yeah I, you know, Fay Ray, it's hard to find a Fay Ray movie that doesn't intrigue me. I mean, these movies, we call them classics for a reason, and she does such a great job in these movies. The camera loves Fay Ray. Yes, yes, that's a really good way to put that. Just as depending on which way he's turning, the camera either loves Lionel Atwell or it makes him look like a real villain. So <laughs> if he's facing one way, uh, he's, he, he might be a nice guy, might not. Who can tell? If he's facing the other way, it's, oh, I don't want to be in the room with that guy. Well, and if he's staring straight forward at the camera like he does a lot in this film, it's like, oh, stop looking at right. me, man. Stop looking at me that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, he's he's just wonderful. And, and a lot of the time he, he affects a very mild face mm-hmm. uh, when mm-hmm. he's dealing with Aunt Gussie. He, it's it's uh, pretty much sitcom time. <laughs> uh, let me make a great sitcom thing is uh, Crazy Uncle uh, Lionel has come by to uh, work on his next paper for the college he works at and he comes by and everybody's like, what's that guy up to anyway? Yeah. <laughs> so it could be a, a, a perfect household drama or comedy with Atwell in it. He should have lived forever. Oh, man. He t- terribly underrated. I feel like maybe I'm throwing this word around too much, you know, the underrated word. But I feel like, you know, there's uh, there's, there's the, the, the top tier. You know, you got Lugosi, Karloff, Cheney, and them. But Atwell, you know, he's right near the top. When it comes to these types of movies, he has that look. Especially when you start talking mad scientist type roles. I mean, he can be terrifying, but then within the same breath, like you said, you can kind of look at him a different way. And he's this gentle guy, which makes him even more scary, I think. Well, and and he's also uh, another unforgettable role is uh, he's the uh, police inspector in Son of Frankenstein. Oh, man. It's so much his role. I mean, it's just that character is so vivid. You don't remember who played it. You just remember how great that performance was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, his, his yeah. performance there is just fantastic. Now, Lionel Atwell is not the only, I'm going to say, icon in this film. You know, we mentioned Faye Ray, but there's somebody else in this movie that I wish did more genre work. I wish got the credit that he was due. Dwight Fry. I mean, come on. Yes, he is just wonderful. And it, it's particularly nice to bring him up following Crime of Dr. Crespi, where he's playing uh, a hospital intern or, or something, but he's, he's one of the good guys in that one. So he can mm-hmm. play somewhat comedic good guy roles as adeptly as he could play village idiots. I've read some quote from him somewhere saying that following the vampire bat saying he kind of resented having to play village idiots all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I could see getting typecast and not being happy about it, but boy, he was good at yeah, it. Yeah, no, that, once you get out of sort of the middle uh, European fairy tale type movies, there's not a lot of call for village idiot characters. So uh, it, it was 
it was a damaging typecasting for his career. Which is uh, too bad, but again, he did it so, so well. Uh, and I think that's probably why I like things like Crime of Dr. Crespi even more, because you get to see him do something against type. Uh, and I will say, it, in The Vampire Bat, I think his character is the most sympathetic in the script. Yeah. I mean, normally, when Dwight Fry gets killed in a movie, and normally Dwight Fry gets killed in a movie, uh, it's just like, oh, well, there's that guy out of the way. But this time, you really feel bad for him. Yeah. Have we already done the warning about spoilers? I, I realize I may have violated something. Oh, there. no. We're, we're yeah, it's spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're bound to, because this is not a movie that uh, resists spoiling it it uh it's got to get cracked wide open in order to discuss it at all i think so i think so with white fry i mean he he's important to the genre because without him we don't have you know the hunchback assistant we don't have igor without fritz you know and then of course his performance as renfield is iconic and one of the most memorable parts of the dracula film outside of lugosi uh but what he does here, too, I mean, you see a little bit of Renfield in there. You see a little bit of, like you said, the village idiot type. It's really interesting and a very sympathetic portrayal of a character who does not deserve his fate, unlike Fritz, who deserves everything that's coming to him. kind of does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, yeah, you made some poor choices, Fritz. Um, but, yeah. you know, this guy, Herman, he didn't deserve what happens to him no. at all. and... There is one of the first telling moments that Lionel Atwell's character is more sinister because he's been treated up to that point as an expert. Mm-hmm. And he's Fayre's boss. Uh, I mean, he's, he's someone trusted by everyone in town. But when he makes a, a, a condescending, sneering remark about Herman's horrified reaction to seeing his friend dead, uh, he makes a sneering, oh, a child frightened of death, <laughs> you, you really recognize that uh, there is something a little subhuman about Atwell's character. I do appreciate that there are different levels of, of how Herman's character is treated, whether it's Atwell yeah. or, or the way the town uh, treats but him. Or them, the, yeah, I mean, there's everyone just a, knows him. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows uh, Herman, and they treat him... Usually gently and somewhat impatiently. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, of course, Kringen finds him terrifying, or gradually finds him increasingly frightening. But Apple's character just makes this sort of sneering, ha-ha, well, well, at the grief and horror on Herman's face. And I will say, as far as performances go, Dwight Fry really delivers a completely convincing look of, of horror and grief when he sees his friend on the slab. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that goes to Dwight Fry again. I mean, the man was absolutely incredibly skilled and, and talented. The script as written is good, but almost every performance is better than it needed to be to get that story across. Uh, <laughs> what, yeah. One of, the, one of the things that I loved was when the coroner, uh, whoever it is that's writing down the information on Maria, uh, I forgot Maria's last name, uh, Miller, uh, you know, name, Maria Miller, age, and the, the person reporting in this tone of infinite regret, age, I don't know. It is affectingly sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it brings across the fact that everybody, you know, remember all these people are standing outside listening for word about the autopsy, and that everyone knew her. Uh, and actually, that is something that is hard to get across in a script. It's something I pay attention to is, in 
in most stories, various characters have had some kind of relationship, known each other for a certain amount of time. But it's very hard to bring across in your performance, this is somebody I have known for years. And in my opinion, it's one of the excellences of the vampire bat that you can tell by the interaction of the characters whether they've known each other a long time or not. You know, there's there's something about this movie that makes it feel more lived in than a lot of the uh, the more poverty road type or, or lower budget movies right. of this era and and maybe that's it maybe i've been having a hard time kind of putting my finger on it but there is a real sense of i don't know if community is the right word but you do feel like there's a history here it's a disrupted community that the people are getting are not simply inclined to be hysterical it's that they're getting pushed there by six weeks of unsolved, unexplained deaths, mm-hmm. uh, and everyone is starting to suspect each other. And remember, when we first see Kringen and Herman in the same scene, Kringen is simply dismissive. Well, go home, Herman. Good. Time to go to bed. Uh, yeah. And that the more he thinks about it, the more he starts to suspect him. But he knows Herman as well as anyone in town. You get a sense of how they treat Herman as well, and Herman's place in all of it. You know, at the beginning of the movie, when he brings the crossover to the woman lying in bed, and and well, he wants to give it to her, but somebody else takes it out of his hands right. and then delivers it. And there's this look of, oh, uh, you know, just this kind of. Yeah, you know, he does make that little sound, that disappointed, oh sound whenever somebody does something for him or shoes him away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's used to making that sound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this is true. It's really fascinating. And, you know, I don't want to get hung up on Dwight Fry. I mean, as much as this could easily turn into the Dwight Fry Appreciation Hour. Well, this is the film that would get that reaction. This is true. Um, this is true. All of his performances, although this is not his best-known role, he's really delivering much more than the script asks for in this. Well, I think that goes back to something you just said a little bit ago about how this movie is filled with performances that are much better than the script, or at least you were kind of yeah. implying that. There's a lot here, and I don't know if it's because they knew they were in an iconic place. I mean, they were shooting on Universal lots. Well, and presumably a lot of them had been there before. Yeah, and obviously you have the chemistry between Lionel Atwell and Faye Ray. They have familiarity yeah. with each other. There's just something here that makes it feel like a very well-put-together thing. I, I don't know if I'm making much yeah. sense here now. but It really uh, feels uh, lived in, as you said. Uh, yeah. And, uh, that it's as if everyone has known each other for years and in fact there are a few hint, uh, a few hints so he's bought apples from Maria for years now. So he's been in that community for a long time. Whereas his assistant, Faye Ray, and her aunt Gussie there isn't really much. Actually, one of the things I wish the movie was 15 minutes longer, so there could have been more explication of a number of aspects in this story. And one of them is, what is Fayre actually doing? <laughs> She's assisting Atwell on something. It involves a lot of uh, scientific-looking beakers and things, but there's never a word what she's supposed to be accomplishing there. And Aunt Gussie plainly is just her chaperone. Uh, but even Aunt Gussie, it, it makes some comment about, well, it smells so moldy, it's not clean like a hospital. So presumably, Atwell has hired Faye Ray away from some hospital somewhere to assist him on this. But it's not clear what she's doing there or how long she's been with him. Yeah, well, just what kind of weird internship did she sign up for? You know, there's something like, what's going on here? You know, you know they never really get to it. Although Aunt Gussie is somewhat 
uh, tiresome to other people around her. Everybody puts up okay with her. She, she never gets any pushback from anyone. I want to go back to Dwight Fry yeah. just one more time uh, to talk about that sense of community when his ultimate fate, when what happens to him happens to him. And maybe this is also about Dwight Fry and more about all the character actors and extras they had as the villagers. The looks on their face when they finally realize what they've yes. just done yes. to somebody that they've known for years. It's moving. Yes, and one of the things that I like very often when a screenwriter will attend to the topic of the torch-bearing local mob, <laughs> they are usually shown up to be somewhere between panicked, superstitious uh, groupers, <laughs> and in some cases they're shown to be actual somewhat villainous troublemakers. Uh, I think it's uh, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman where the torch-bearing mob is actually kind of a villain in the movie. But in this case, uh, the, the belief that this has all been the work of vampires and ultimately that Herman is a vampire is down to Sauron, you know, one of the town council. And in other movies, when it's come to the point where the body, you know, the body has fallen down this hole and he's 50 feet down on a ledge, usually the villagers would uh, be shocked at what they've done and turn away. And Sauer has the strength of his convictions to say, I've got to go down there after it and finish the job. Uh, and for somebody of Sauer's age <laughs> to say, give me a rope, I'm going to climb down 50 feet and finish this job. Uh, shows a strength of character and a conviction in his conclusions that we don't normally see from uh, historical townspeople. Yeah, I agree. All right, anyway, um, the rest of the cast, you know, Lionel Elwell, fantastic. Faye Ray, yep. solid. I even like M Melvin Douglas, although, uh, uh, honestly, I feel like he might have been the, the lesser of the batch. He's still good. Yeah. He's still great. Uh, on repeated viewings, I, I like him better on repeated viewings. Okay. It's very rare for somebody who's the hero in a movie like this to really capture your your affection unless it is a recurring detective character. Uh, and he's not. He's just some guy. He's, he's just a police guy who's shoved into the position of having to solve a mystery. He did not study for this. Right. His name, Brettschneider, Carl Brettschneider. Brettschneider is German for board cutter. <laughs> you don't expect somebody named Boardcutter to be a top detective. <laughs> In fact, one of the things I love about this movie and makes it stand out from similar such things, all the character names mean something. Okay. Niemann means nobody. He's Dr. Nobody. Huh. In German, Niemann, with a D on the end, Niemann means no one. Huh. Okay. The, the mayor is uh, Gustav Schoen, which means nice. And you'll notice that he does not much argue. He tries to prove his point about, oh, it must be vampires. We had a past vampire attack here. But even at some point, when, he, when he's trying his hardest to argue with Inspector Brettschneider, he makes a fist and brings it down as if to stamp on the table with his hand. But he just taps the table. He doesn't even make a sound when he brings his fist down. And he's very happy when Brettschneider, some of the town council people, says, okay, you're my deputies. Now go round up Herman. It is with great relief to the mayor or to the burgermeister that somebody else is taking charge on this because he, he would rather not make uh, hard decisions. It's something I hadn't watch it. even thought about, <laughs> but now, now I'm going to have to go back and watch it again. Darn. <laughs> yes, yes, it is well worth, well worth re-watching for things. I mean, and here, 
how much acting do you need from somebody playing Burgermeister? But he's really giving it everything it's worth. And this is Lionel Belmore, who we, of course, know yeah. from Frankenstein, who's also the Burgermeister. Right? So, right. you know, an- another familiar face. He was also in Son of Frankenstein as well. So to have him there... Yep, I would say probably somewhat more nuanced in his Vampire Bat performance because it requires him to be the Burgermeister, but also a weak Burgermeister. Yes. There's a lot of nuance here in the whole thing. and Yes! It's so good. Even amusing Aunt Gussie is giving a solid performance. Yeah, she doesn't pull an Uno O'Connor here. I mean, she <laughs> which she could have. I mean, this movie, there's a lot yeah. of this movie where it feels like it was just balanced just right to where it could have gone mm-hmm. to places that it wouldn't have been as enjoyable, but I feel like everything's firing on yeah, every all, cylinder here, on all cylinders here. Yeah. And and the, the situations call for, when, when, for instance, Aunt Gussie gets hysterical when she faints, when she finds out that Herman is Herman, that it's the Herman that people have been talking about arresting mm-hmm. and when she realizes it's he she faints uh and when she opens her eyes again there's a great dane looking her in the face to one degree it's mildly funny oh ha ha she's being followed around by this dog and on the other hand i wouldn't like to be followed by that dog <laughs> right. uh, that's a pretty imposing beast there a human-faced dog a dog-faced herman a herman-faced he was like <laughs> that was a lot of fun yep. that was a lot of fun yep the the overall film, I think if this movie had anything going against it, and this might be what people kind of get turned off about this movie, and I wish they didn't, but there is no real vampire here per se. There is no Dracula. There is a blood consumer, however. There is, there is, and there are bats, but, you know, right. for a movie... Well, I, will, I will say, yep, you were going to say for a movie that has the title The Vampire Bat, it's disappointing that no, no such is found. Mm-hmm. As I said, pretty much by definition, if you went to a movie to see Lionel Atwell and Faye Ray, you would consider it the most disappointing of the three team-ups, partly because you're expecting more than you're getting in terms of vampire. Where's the vampire? Uh, But... Yeah, I, I will say that I think, I suspect that the whole concept of the monster in this movie, and the monster is the, the death loofah that's in the tank, that it is one of the most original monsters in 1930s movies. It is definitely a life form that was made by unnatural means, mm-hmm. but it is also the most harmless monster in 1930s movies. <laughs> it doesn't do anything. It sits there and waits to be fed like Audrey Jr., except <laughs> it doesn't even talk. If it did talk, that would be a whole other movie. Right, it's just sitting there in a tank. And I think... Yeah, sitting there harmlessly in a tank. Yeah, the villain is not the creature that needs blood. That's not the villain. Right. You know, it's not doing anything wrong. The, the villain in the movie is not even the person who abducted the victims. Yeah. That's uh, uh, Emil, who is totally innocent. He's like, he's like Cesare the Somnambulist. He's completely innocent, despite being the pair of hands that did the dirty mm-hmm. work. Yeah, agreed. And that goes to the different levels of this film, that you've got all these things yeah. happening. You know, is he the bad guy? Is he the villain? How is Lionel Atwell involved in this? Because you know he's involved in this. But there's a monster, yeah. but it's in a tank, so is it really actively doing something? It drinks blood, but is it bad? There's just a lot going on here that, that adds several levels yeah. of, you said nuance earlier, I'm going to use that word again, of nuance here that, that I find fascinating about this movie and i'm even the more i talk about it with you the more i'm loving it that's one reason i love showing it to people is i get different opinions on it every time 
Uh, in fact, my sister Katie had a had a great reaction to it after we talked about well, the blood loofah doesn't <laughs> doesn't ever attack anybody. It just sits there waiting to be fed. And Katie said, "Well, why didn't Doctor Neiman just capture bats and feed the blood to the, from the bats?" Hey, yeah, okay. <laughs> so there's that. It's, it, it's a why don't they just situation. Why don't they just see that the bat's blood? Then nobody would complain. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm loving that you're calling it the blood loofah. That's <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> the blood loofah. I want somebody to make market that somehow, you know, like a stuffed animal or something. You know, yes, the, the blood loofah from need, the vampire. You need bat. great titles. Yes, the shriek of the blood loofah. So my wife is in the other room, and she's kind of giggling a little bit at the word, the phrase blood loofah. And she's like, all it needs is loofah. Yeah. All it needs is loofah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> With red-colored red soap. Just get a loofah and put red-colored soap. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, inside in the middle. In the middle. Oh. <laughs> I like it. I like it. To go to the blood loofah, <laughs> this creature, yep. I think this creature kind of is uh, indicative of just how much horror there is happening here. Because you've got Lionel Atwell, who's orchestrating these murders so he can get the blood for this thing that does have some very vampire-like qualities. But he's also talking about creating flesh, and there's a Frankensteinian thing going on here, too. And it's just this weird mix that just, ooh, it's good. He makes, he says, horrifying, I can see the horror in your eyes. He says, I felt that way, too, the first time. Uh, and you think the first time what? And obviously the introduction of blood to this manufactured life form is he must have cut his own finger and said it because where else would he get the idea to feed blood to this thing? Right. Uh, and so I tend to think it, it's very much like Audrey Jr. that uh, he just happened to nick, you know, nipped his finger and uh, it, it it pulsated when uh, when he when it was fed. And he thought, hmm, where can I get more of this stuff without sacrificing another finger? But but all of that is something that you have to conjecture, and you don't have time during the short runtime of this film. It's why I wish the film was 10 or 15 minutes longer so we could get a little more of the, a backstory on some of this just, stuff. Just a little bit more, because, again, it goes back to everybody in this film feels like they've known each other for years. There's this sense of cinematic well, community. Yeah. I would love to play with that even more because it's clearly there. Yeah, well, and also there's no explanation for his hypnotizing and and remotely driving a meal around. That's a, a, a story attribute that is so unexplained as to leave you shaking your head the first time you watch the movie. Uh, I'm presuming it was a little less unexplained at the time because we had movies like uh, John Barrymore in Svengali mm-hmm. where uh, people hypnotizing and then driving other people around for a while was was a, a well-known melodramatic plot element. Uh, but here, these days, when you don't see it that often in films, it's sort of a head-scratcher. Well, and the first time that it happened in this film, um, I thought maybe I blinked a little too long that maybe I missed something, because it just kind of happens. You've missed something, especially if you've watched the public domain prints, because there's a scene where he's doing that, or a scene where they're discussing when, when Georgiana, the housekeeper, comes in and discusses that she thinks a male is the murderer. That's missing out of the public domain press. Oh, okay. Taking a few moments to discuss what just happened here is something 
that's talked about in the complete print, but it happens out of nowhere in the public domain print. This is a really nice transfer, too. It was restored. UCLA were the people involved with that, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it looks great. And can does. we talk about that color bit? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. So they're chasing Herman around. And, and I know we really haven't talked too much about the story, but I think just kind of us talking about it, people might be able to glean what's going on here uh, with the blood lufa and accusing Herman of being a vampire. When the villagers are chasing down Herman, it's at night, so it's, it's torches, and they're chasing him around Bronson Canyon. Which looks amazing in, the, in this print. Uh, the, uh, oh, God. The, the caves look really menacing, and yet all the detail stands right out. It, it's just a revelation. Mm-hmm. And those torches. Oh, the torches. Yeah. Oh, the torches. So they've colored the torches. Yeah. It, now, it's, it's slightly unnatural because, you know, they didn't have the technology, obviously, we have today, uh, where they can go in and give all the flames, the, the oranges and the reds and the whites and all that. Right. So, so it's a little one note, but it works and it's creepy, and it's fascinating to watch. To my eyes, when, I, when watching it on my screen, which is not the biggest in the world, but to watch that scene, it gave a strangely 3D effect so that the villagers surrounding Dwight Fry on either side, it, you really feel a 3D as they're doing that because of the torches. You, you, you kind of pull your head back a little bit because it feels like that your face might be too close to the fire. Yeah, even though it isn't photorealistic color, it's very, very effective. Yeah. By the way, for another example of that, you, you may have in your collection uh, the recent release, I think on Kino, of The Lost World, the, the Willis O'Brien movie from the 1920s. I don't have that yet. I, I, I need to add it to my collection. Yeah, I need it. There is a similarly colored torch scene where somebody's fl- flinging a torch in that, and it uh, it is very effective. Yeah, it's... there's. Man, I could talk about this movie for a long time because there's a lot to really kind of dive into. It barely runs over 60 minutes, but there's more than 60 minutes worth of conversation that comes of watching it. This is not true of all 1930s genre films. Especially the lower budget ones, you know, and and maybe it's not fair to say this is Poverty Row. I don't know if it is, technically. Well, the script is by a guy who had been on staff at Universal for decades at that point. So Mm -hmm. it's it's a much better script than you would expect out of a Poverty Row film. Edward T. Lowe Jr. was the the screenwriter on that. And he had worked on House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, or he would go on to work on House of Frankenstein. And The Hunchback of Notre Dame, 1923. So he was used to doing big budget spectacular film. Mm-hmm. And it feels like it. There are moments in this movie, well, even that scene we're talking about with the torches, with the villagers chasing Herman around the caves. Mm-hmm. That feels like a bigger budget sequence than I'm sure it probably was. Everybody shoots at Bronson Caves, you know, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. But there's something about the way this is shot and used that makes it stand out. Yeah, I think it's a lucky convergence of so many different factors that just work well together. In a lot of cases, it feels like a st- photographed stage play. There's an awful lot of scenes of people standing in a room talking with each other. But when it gets to things like the hunting for uh, Herman, or there's a couple of wonderful shots, establishing shots, uh, like of the town, and the camera swoops up to somebody's window, and then someone or something sneaks in the window. You know, that's a tracking shot that they must have spent a lot of time thinking that up and photographing it, uh, because, you know, they didn't have big they didn't have big expensive equipment to shoot something like that. They had to plan it out very carefully. 
Uh, and that amount of planning really pays off in the overall film. I'm glad you brought that up because I was about to ask if we had talked about the director yet, Frank R. Strayer. And the way he uses the camera, there is some pretty, for the time, I'd think, sophisticated camera work here. There are a lot of moving camera shots. I don't know anything about this director. I I need to know more because I really liked what he did here. Well, it's great. Look him up. He mostly did did family comedies. He did the Blondie film. Yeah, I was just looking at his uh, filmography here, the the Blondie movies. I also saw a movie called Gorilla Ship, which unfortunately is not about a ship full of gorillas. But, you know, I mean. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but he did what? Looks like maybe at least 10 of these Blondie movies. If not, I, I don't know how many there were, but he did a ton of them. They were big success. Yeah. Yeah. The way he uses the camera here is is pretty solid work. I mean, the way the camera's moving around, which as much as I love Dracula, the original Dracula, a lot of times Todd Browning locked the camera down. Yeah. And in a lot of yeah. genre movies from this period, they, they were doing that because, you know, they're still trying to figure it out. This one seems to really exploit what they can do with moving camera shots. One of the things that amazed me when rewatching it recently is that there is a scene after it is discovered that Herman is dead, so he can no longer be a uh, suspect. Inspector Brett Schneider is walking back and forth talking partly to himself and partly to Lionel Atwell. He's walking back and forth and talking, and he walks away from the microphone. So his voice gets a little dimmer and then a little stronger and a little dimmer. And that's part of the characterization. It's part of the story. Part of the way we are to experience this is that he's walking away from us and getting quieter and walking toward us and getting louder. There's very few movies of that era where the sound design is really part of the film. One of the remarkable things, and I don't know exactly what to think of it, is very often when there's a scene change where we get that, that sort of slanted wipe across the screen, <laughs> yeah. the beginning of the scene is wordless. And we go, we go like for 40 seconds without anybody saying anything, and then somebody talks. And I haven't really decided yet if that is a stylistic thing or if it's simply that the director thought somebody would drop in some music cues there, and they decided to... Uh, spend less money and not have music cues to drop in. You know, now that I think about it, did this movie have much music in it? Not a lot. Strangely enough, and it's something that, it's the only part of uh, the commentary track that's on the film detective release. The only part that really applies directly to the movie is when the guy talks about the music cues. They were apparently composed for the film, and it's the opening... which is titled The Ghost Walks. And the following thing, which is titled Stealthy Footsteps or something like that. And they were apparently composed for this film. But if you watch any poverty war movie made after this, that was part of a music library. So it's used over and over and over and over again in uh, independent films. Okay. You'll even hear it in in um, 
the serial Phantom Empire, the one with Gene Autry and the Gene Autry writers. <laughs> they use they use both uh, music cues in that repeatedly. Huh. But according to the film commentary, they were they were composed original for this film. Huh. Okay. And then yeah no, and then the rest of the film there's no music cues, and then there's finally do 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 at the end. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, which which was also composed for the film. But the, the thing is, that I think that the director thought there would be music cues during these scene changes, but they just didn't go ahead and do it. So you have these odd, somewhat atmospheric, silent things where uh, Lionel Atwell is checking the pulse of Maria and then walks across the room, and there's no sound at all. Uh, and I, I just, it feels like the director thought somebody would put some mysterioso in there, and they just didn't get around to it. Uh, probably because it would cost money. <laughs> there is that, right? You know, I don't, yeah. I don't think I missed it though. I think, and even well, like you were saying with the, the wipes, the wipes between scenes without the music, I think yeah. that kind of adds to it as well. Also, when I used the the term uh, sound design, mm-hmm. when um, Brett Schneider leaves his meeting with the town council, and then there's a wipe. And he comes, Georgiana lets him into, through the door where he walks down into the basement where the, there's the lab. You can hear the machines in the lab as he walks down the stairs. So there's this sensation of uh, mysterious machines and bubbly things before he even gets down to being on the same level with them and meeting up with, with Ray. So there's, there's increasingly this unnatural yet to be explained sound going on that is so subdued uh, that if there was any incidental music, it would have covered it up. As somebody who's been doing uh, some sound design work and sound effects work for uh, an upcoming you know, film by our friends Josh Kennedy, oh. I'm really paying attention to that kind of thing when I watch these movies and becoming more and more aware of the sound design part of it. And I hadn't considered where the guy's walking away from the microphone. I hadn't considered that, but you're absolutely right. Well, another good example is, uh, as I say in the scene with uh, Atwell, who has made a bedside visit to Maria, who has been frightened by the what she thought was a big bat. <laughs> and he checks her pulse and walks across the room, and it's silent. The next shot, he walks up to the wall and then goes to the window and opens the window and says the windows should be open. If you listen, you can hear the gaslight. I mean, you can hear the gas in the background. The intention is to make the room seem hot before he announces that the room seems hot wouldn't somebody open a window. It's worthy of Alan's sweat, for heaven's sake. I really thought it was wonderful. And it's something you wouldn't hear if there was incidental music. You know, Paul, um, listeners, we're recording this on a weekend. Uh, it's a, it's a Saturday morning here and, uh, I think Paul just helped me figure out what I'm going to be doing with the rest of my day. I'm going to go back and rewatch this movie to try and pick this stuff up. It, is, it rewards repeat viewings. Now you had said something about, uh, something that Frank Delostrito has brought up about this film and was it House of Frankenstein? Yes. Yes. It's House of Frankenstein where it is the second film that I know of with a Dr. Niemann. <laughs> uh, and it is also written by Edward Lowe. Uh, and it has, uh, at some point in House of Frankenstein, the escaped Dr. Neiman, who, by a sort of deus ex machina, has, has escaped from his uh, jail cell along with an assistant played by J. Carroll Nash, and whose name I've suddenly forgotten, 
And Karloff's character, Dr. Neiman, is going through uh, Middle Europe uh, hoping to recover Dr. Frankenstein's journals. And uh, J. Carol Nash asks him, so how do you know all this medical stuff? And he says, oh, my brother used to work with Dr. Frankenstein. And I suspect, being as it's the same writer, and that he has named his mad doctors Dr. Neiman or Dr. Nobody, that there is intended continuity between the vampire bat and uh, House of Frankenstein, and that the, the brother who used to work with Frankenstein had been, uh, had been the same Lionel Atwell character that had descended on the town of Kleinschloss in, in uh, <laughs> Vampire Bat. Whether it was intentional or not, as far as I'm concerned, that is the, that is the continuity now. That's the headcanon I'm going to go with. <laughs> yep. yep. So it means that all, all universal monster collectors and completists are going to want to get that nice brand new vampire bat so that they can get the full continuity of House of Frankenstein. You, you got to see. You got to follow the family tree, you know? Yep. It's interesting that Dr. Frankenstein had had been able to restore life using electricity and various other technological things, but that Dr. Neiman had actually created life, or so he says, in his uh, laboratory. And, and Dr. Frankenstein never never made a blood loofah. He he just uh, reanimated <laughs> existing tissue. Sorry. This blood loofah, I just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't. I can't not get all. You use a sponge. You'll think twice. <laughs> oh man! Does it want more? <laughs> Emil, <laughs> you must go and get me some more. <laughs> oh man! I like Emil. By the way, he's the plantation owner, the somewhat, uh, let's say, corrupt plantation owner in White Zombie. The, the, the fellow who later regrets having uh, murdered Lejean do his uh, dirty work uh, and that he is not satisfied with the uh, zombied-out girlfriend that he had so wanted. <laughs> uh, and that's the same guy. There's so many really cool connections. Listeners, I know we've spoiled a lot of this movie. We've talked about who the real villain is, what happens to Dwight Fry, that sort of thing. But if you haven't seen this movie... There is so much to really kind of get into and enjoy. And I mean, plumb the depths of this thing. There's a lot. And I think Paul's right. It's going to reward you if you watch it more than once. Repeated viewings is going to reveal and illuminate even more. If nothing else, you get to see the Bronson Canyon caves looking the best they've ever looked. And I'm including all the Roger Corman stuff where he filmed there, or even Batman. I love the way the caves look here. Dwight Fry's performance is solid. Lionel Atwill is creepy when he wants to be, and it's just awesome. This movie, it's got it all, man. That it does. It does. And it's got a, a very original non-human monster. Pardon me, I don't mean to burp at you. Uh, it's got a very original non-human monster uh, who is the least of everyone's problems, really. <laughs> right. But, uh, and also, there is, uh, as mentioned before, there's a lot of uh, sympathy for the strong arm of, of all the villains, uh, Emil, who is utterly innocent and he manages to be an imposing figure regardless. Yeah, and if if anything, the only thing we're kind of missing is maybe a little bit more about Emil's backstory and how the doc has... Well, he's been with the doctor. He's, he's finally been with the doctor for years and the, the closing confrontation between Emil and, and Dr. Neiman it's possible not to quite know what's going on there, but it's that uh, 
that Dr. Neiman is trying to regain control by hypnotizing him again. Yeah. That's why the, the, the standoff with the gun is likely to be lost by Emil. It would only take a few more seconds and Emil would have dropped the gun. Yep. Something that's worth pointing out, because I don't recall seeing it with Lionel Atwell before, but as the, as the mystery is drawing to a close, remember he has uh, arranged for Georgiana to be killed. Mm-hmm at about the three-quarter mark in the film, that he's setting things up. He's already come up with his alibi and how old was Herman, what done it, and all this other stuff. And he's gone so far as to make coffee and have it sitting there. And, and when the knock comes at the door, he pours himself some coffee and then comes to the door as if he's been drinking it all along. <laughs> uh, going back to rewarding re- repeat viewing, watch his hands starting in that scene that the more he's afraid people suspect him, his hands shake. Okay. At one point, you know, he's, made the co- or he's got the coffee there, and he's offering coffee to other people, and he asks Faye Ray to pour the coffee, because he doesn't want to have people to see his hands shaking. And I, I do like the coffee, but my wife is a huge coffee drinker, yeah. and you know, we drink a lot of coffee yeah. around here. And uh, so the way he explains that how he knows he's done having coffee for the day is, well, when he's drank it all, you know, it's, it's, it's like, yep. yeah, he, he knows my wife. That's it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It takes a very special thing. As, as Gussie says, oh, if I had any coffee now, I'd be, you know, there'd be no stopping me. But uh, those characters, somebody who can drink coffee late at night and still go to bed. We've really kind of broken down a big chunk of this film. Is there anything else we're missing? Uh, I feel like we've done a pretty good job of convincing listeners they need to see it, but is there anything that, uh, you wanted to make sure we covered because I think we've kind of done a pretty good job here. I I think uh, that's probably satisfactory for now. People will have to discover their own areas of most interest on doing it. And by the way, the public domain prints, which I've made disparaging remarks about, Mm -hmm. they give you a good helping of this movie. It's just that there's, I added it up and there's something like three and a half more minutes in the film detective release on on Blu-ray. I don't know why you'd want to get anything other than the Blu-ray of this, to be honest. Um, that, it is. It's pretty compelling. Yeah. And if nothing else, the torch scene is amazing to, yeah. just, just to see that. And it's got the commentary track. It's got a little special feature on there about something with Melvin Douglas, which, again, I haven't watched that either. I need yeah. to go back and watch. And it's such a great film. Well, I've had such a blast. And, and I have to thank you once again for uh, all the movies that you have discussed with people that I had never even heard of before. Uh, the uh, Cave of the Vampires? What was that? It was a uh, Cave of the Living Dead, yes. Cave of the Living Dead. I'd never heard of that movie. I loved it. Uh, oh, it's so good. Uh, yep, and, and the, the Barbara Steele movies, uh, what was it, Nightmare Castle? Castle, Castle of Blood? Castle of Blood. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, that I went, on the basis of that discussion, went and ordered them, and they more than fulfilled my interest. Right on. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, Cable of the Living Dead, uh, that was Steve Turek's idea, and I'm so glad he brought that one up because it was really good. Uh, Castle of Blood, we did as part of Edgar August Poe Month, and that one was solid. Yep. Yeah, I appreciate you saying thank you because usually I get, uh, you know, Derek, you're making me spend way too much money on Monster Movies. <laughs> so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're welcome. I'm glad it was worth it. <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> Good stuff. So, Paul, I know you through Facebook. Uh, you've got a background in, I think, some comics and things like that. And you've worked with Steve Sullivan in the past as well. Back in 1988, I worked at a company called Innovation. With, and Steve was on 
he was certainly a freelance writer, but I think he also had a staff position, however briefly, with Innovation. They were best known for doing comic versions, graphic novel versions of the Vampire Lestat and other uh, Anne Rice properties. And then from there, I went to work at Marvel Comics for several years. So uh, that was an interesting part of my weird career. The reason I asked about, uh, I brought up Steve is I just want to know if there's any dirt on him that I can, no, I'm just... <laughs> not that I, not that I can easily recollect, although one of the other staffers was able to do an imitation of Steve's voice so that if he had been inclined to do, play practical jokes, he could have been Stephen Sullivan on the phone and nobody would have known the oh, wow. But... <laughs> That's another matter entirely. I think that if I ever wanted to do anything like that with Steve, I've got enough raw audio here that I could just kind of <laughs> cut and paste. Yes, you know? <laughs> yes. Take that, Steve. Yeah. I told Steve Turek just yesterday, actually, that he should be thankful that I use my powers for good because I have so much audio now of so many of my friends that I can. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> Which is probably not the best thing to say when I'm also actively looking for work as an audio editor. So, uh, um... <laughs> I don't know. It might, might work in your favor. People say, here, give him a job. That'll keep him happy for now. <laughs> Well, Paul, this has been a lot of fun. we got to have you back on the show down the line, talk about another movie or something. It would be my pleasure. Once again, big thanks to Paul for being part of the show this week and for bringing the vampire bat to the Monster Kid radio table. It is so good, and I'm serious. I did go back and watch it again that afternoon after I got done recording with Paul, and I have a feeling I'm going to be watching it again sometime soon because it's just so good. Paul, thanks again. And for the record, everybody who's been on the show and everybody who will be on the show in the future, no, I'm not holding on to all of your audio so that I can remix it, make it sound like you said something terrible, and then hold it over your head as blackmail. I promise. I'm not doing that. I mean, you can trust me, right? A human being so horribly slaughtered in the dungeon of doom. Grisly sacrifices for a maniac's vengeance. Men without souls whose artificial blood keeps their cruel brains alive. See just how far maniacal mistreatment can go. It's a new bizarre shocker in the master of the macabre, Edgar Allan Poe. With Christopher Lee in his greatest horror role to Dracula. mangled body rises for its coffin. A new siege of the sinister starts. I needed the blood of 13 women. I found 12. They struggled against death. It was that desire to live. It's far out, fantastic and frightening. The creeping, crawling terror that haunts those marked for diabolical disaster. Here's the thrills of more than a dozen horror movies all rolled into one. <laughs> Nobody will ever escape from the blood demon. We dare you to keep watching the screen through here. Hello everyone, I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for Cast, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashie. 
We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema, filtered through our brains to you. Yes. Now, what is it that qualifies two Southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain? And I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. Nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. Nashi Cast yeah. covers the films of Paul Nashi and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. And yes, if you love beautiful women wearing incredibly short miniskirts in subarctic temperatures, <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love werewolves, vampires, unidentifiable beasts, or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac. <laughs> yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks like Sham- melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf. How of the Devil. Vengeance of the Zombies. Or Arises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Ooh, yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. The Fury of the Wolfman, a strange and mysterious story packed with intrigue and horror. What was the terrible secret that haunted Walter Mendeninsky and that threw him into a world of violence and terror? (laughs) The Fury of the Wolfman. This is the story of a haunted man, a life bewildered by mystery and horror. And nothing could keep Dr. Elman away from using even grave tombs for her horrible experiments. Don't worry. His mind is dominated. Destiny pushed Professor Daninsky into the lives of monstrous freaks. The mysterious world of the beautiful Dr. Ilona Elman. A wild battle in a world full of gruesome violence and horror. A world of the lowest passions. This is the story of a man who changed into a wild beast. There's something strange. What are you going to do now? I want you to listen carefully to this, Danitsky. This is the drama of a normal human being. A professor of psychology who got involved into mystery and crime, who was wanted by the police, who could not help changing into a furious animal. Only love could make an end to his torture. Don't miss the fury of the wolfman. Action, violence, horror. 
filmed with more realism than you can imagine. The Fury of the Wolfman, a Max Burr Film production. Hera Cristal, Veronica Lujan, and Michael Rivers. Horror, if there ever was. Steve Turek, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Derek. How you doing? I'm good. You know what happens when you go to tinyurl.com slash frankpoll? I don't know what, Derek. You go to a Frankenstein poll that... Well, clearly Steve isn't paying attention because this was kind of sort of his idea. <laughs> <laughs> to celebrate 200 years of Frankenstein, we want to know what your favorite Frankenstein films are. And not just your favorite, but what you consider the best Frankenstein movies are as well. Because there could be a difference, let's be honest. We're not going to say that it has to be in a particular year. There's no time frame. If you like I, Frankenstein, if you like Hotel Transylvania 3 because Frankenstein's in that, that's fine. Any year. Any Frankenstein movie, we want to know your top five films. So if you love Young Frankenstein, Monster Squad, Einstein's Frankenstein, vote for him. I mean, you might want Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. I mean, whatever your favorite is, whatever your best is, but we also want you to put it in order. We want, yes, I like to cause the pain. I want you to pick your number one, two, three, four, five. And what we're going to do is a weighted rating. So when we get the votes, I'm going to tally it up. Whatever you voted for number one, we'll get five points. Whatever you voted for number five, we'll get one point. And that way we'll hopefully get a definitive winner. I want to make Steve's life very difficult. So I want as many people as possible to vote and give him plenty of movies to put together, tally, weight, score, and present. And then we'll announce the poll results on a later episode later this year. Yeah, and, and Derek, if you're wondering, the reason I came up with this is because everybody always talks about Frankenstein and um, the Bride of Frankenstein. And some people say, oh, Frankenstein sped it on Forrest Karloff, of course, and Bride of Frankenstein. And this way we'll have, hopefully, a definitive winner between those two, if those two actually finish number one. And a point of clarification here, too. It's not just the Universal stuff. I know Hammer Films went a different way with the Frankenstein mythos and the Frankenstein stories. So you might like The Revenge of Frankenstein or Frankenstein Created Woman. Those count, even if it's not a traditional Frankenstein monster a la Boris Karloff. Exactly. You might vote for I, Frankenstein. I personally don't know why, but you might decide I, Frankenstein, is your favorite or best. Or even Frankenweenie. A Frankenweenie should play somewhere up there. So like I said, the deadline is the beginning of November. November 10th is when you need to fill out the poll. And again, it's tinyurl.com slash frankpoll. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net so you can just follow the link, fill out the poll, and that's it. You're done. Super easy. Please vote, spread the word, share with your friends. Everybody knows Frankenstein movies. Everybody loves the Frankenstein monster. So there's got to be people, everybody. Get them to vote. Get tons of people to vote. Huh? 
action you've never seen races across your screen as you thrill to a new dimension in picture-making, Carnival of Souls. This is the shocking story of a who crawled from the river to race through a nightmare, walking a tightrope between heaven and hell. From the unreal, she crashes through to reality. Try as she will to lead a normal life, she is torn from a goal. There's no privacy in her life. She's ever watched, tormented. Either it's her neighbor, desirous of her physically, watching her with his leering eye, or it's the evil eye of the man, the man who taunts her, the man who wants her. From the bottom of the river they come. They reach for her. They demand that she dance with them at the Carnival of Souls. She is a girl driven mad by the relentless forces of the beyond. He will not relent as he comes for her again and again. She whirls between the real and the unreal, trying to cling to life. I like being with you, really I do. I don't want to be alone tonight. I want to be near you. Honey. Want to go in there all by yourself, do you? But she must watch herself in death. She must dance at the Carnival of Souls held just for her. For they have come for her for the last time, claiming her as one of their own. Carnival of Souls arouses such emotion that the management has been forced to state positively no refunds. Of Souls is the shocker of all time, guaranteed to sweep you into a new dimension of picture making. You can't afford to miss Carnival of Souls. Come back. Back through the fire and water network. Come back with the supermates. I said, come back. Back to the House of Frankenstein. The Supermates present four blood-curdling films with an all-star cast. Lon Chaney Jr. I know you'll think I'm crazy, but in a half an hour the moon will rise and I'll turn into a wolf. Gary Busey. I'm a little too old to be playing the Hardy Boys meet Reverend Werewolf. Christina Ricci. I'd love to have a tame one, but I wouldn't have the heart to cage him. Corey Hain. I want you to turn this into a silver bullet. Bela Lugosi. You should be careful. A person can get killed that way. Johnny Depp. No, you must believe me. It was a horseman, a dead one. Headless. Peter Cushing. Have you heard of the cult of the undead? Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Do you know what could happen if I meet Dracula in the woods? I'll bite. Oh, no, you gotta stand in line. Plus four monstrous battles with your favorite comic book heroes. I sense you're trying to resist this evil, Batman. Open your mind so I can help you. Destroy me, Sean. Booster Gold, Vampire Slayer. This September and October, come back to the Fire and Water Network and the home of horror and heroes. I believe you're in the house of Dracula right now. No, wrong address. Come back to the house of Frankenstein. Back. Back. Yes, master. Give me some Dracula. Dracula is back. All new. 
all-powerful. <laughs> Blackula, the Black Prince of Shadows, rises from his grave to stalk the earth again in the all-new motion picture chilla, Scream, Blackula, Scream. <laughs> Blackula returns, quenching his thirst for blood in a death trap for his enemies. Blackula, more horrifying than Dracula, screaming for revenge against a voodoo cult of evil. See Scream, Blackula, Scream, all new, rated PG, starring William Marshall, Don Mitchell, and Pam Greer, the sensuous godmother of coffee. You were terrified at Blackula. Now the Prince of Shadows returns in Scream, Blackula, Scream. Hey, Derek, it's Chris Franklin from the Supermates and the House of Franklin's Dine, and I just want to call and, and tell you how much I enjoyed uh, your episode uh, where you discussed Dracula AD 1972. I mean, that is a <laughs> – I know it's a divisive movie. Even in my household, Cindy kind of acts like she doesn't like it, but I think she really does. I think she's, I think she's messing with me. Uh, we joke about Johnny Alucard, and she rolls her eyes, but I, I think she secretly digs it. It's kind of a running gag on, on House of Franklin's Dine, but – uh, I really like that one, and and uh, the beginning of it to, to me that's the preferred way that the uh, the original Dracula Van Helsing battle ends. I I, I prefer that one over uh, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. Uh, I know that's a that's a favorite of yours, and I I enjoy it as well. But I I I think I like Dracula eighty nineteen seventy two quite a bit better. But yeah, it's uh, it's funny that you, you ran the uh, trailer for Count Yorga because uh, I think I think Hammer was kind of like hey. Wait a minute, you know, with Count Yorga, they're like, what, what? They got a vampire in modern times. What's going on? So, I think this, in a way, this is a kind of a response to Count Yorga, maybe. Uh, but it's it doesn't matter because Hammer, it's Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, and uh, for all the reasons that you guys uh, named, it's great. I also am. I added like three books uh, to my Christmas list, as I said on the Facebook page. The Info Gothic, the 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 horror of uh, the monster music book and the uh, history of the jack-o'-lantern are all on there now so uh thanks for uh spreading the word on those i'm really looking forward to it and and uh and your talk with the authors was great and it got me really excited uh i hope to see these you know under the christmas tree and if i don't get them i'll be buying them right after christmas on amazon so uh <laughs> so i'm definitely looking forward to those so uh, thanks again. Great show. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Listeners, you heard the promo for the House of Frankenstein still going strong. If you haven't listened to it yet, you can get caught up. It's a great show. I have so much fun listening to that. I love it when the podcasts that I love devote themselves to all things Halloween this time of year. The Cromcast is doing Cromtober. The HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast is doing Blocktober, where they're talking about Robert Block's work. I mean, it's just awesome to have more Halloween focus. I mean, a lot of the genre podcasts are always doing horror movies anyway. But to dial it in to all things Halloween, that's cool. So, Chris, thank you for doing that. And as far as Johnny Alucard, you know, there's a question in the Classic Five that comes up. Who's the best dresser in all of Hammer films? Well, sure. Peter Cushing looks great as his Van Helsing. Awesome. Captain Kronos has got an awesome cape. But you know what? Johnny Alucard, he's pretty darn smooth. That hat kind of sets it off for me. Hi, Derek and the Monster Kids. This is Jeff Glitter calling with another weird Saturday report. So this past weekend... My son and I went back to the 99W Drive-In in Newburgh, Oregon, 
And we did see Venom again. It was uh, worth seeing again, but uh, that's not the reason we went out. The reason we went is because the second feature was 1987's The Lost Boys. Now, again, this is a little outside the Monster Kid Radio's usual purview, but it's definitely a monster movie. It is the vampire movie from my childhood. Uh, I love that movie so much. I don't know how I've gotten my son to age 16 without having seen it before, but this was his first time seeing it, and he enjoyed it too. The soundtrack still rocks. The acting and action is still great. Uh, man, there is just nothing I don't really like about this movie. Uh, it'd be great if they found a way for it to pass the Bechdel test. You know, that's something I look for these days. But uh, otherwise, man, what a great movie. And the parallels between The Lost Boys, the movie, and what's kind of the source material, which is Peter Pan, uh, they're there. A lot of character names are based on names from Peter Pan. In earlier scripts, they were supposed to be younger children, not the, the motorcycle early 20s, late teens. The human boys were supposed to be Michael and John, uh, but they changed, you know, the, the younger boy's name. Uh, anyway, a lot of fun. Love the movie. It holds up. So many things from my childhood don't hold up. The Lost Boys holds up so well. Anyway, that's it. Uh, I'll be going to Weird Wednesday this week. It's Monster Roulette, so we don't know what we'll be seeing, but hopefully Jeff will draw or have an audience member draw something from the Mystic Pumpkin, and we'll have a lot of fun. I hope everyone's having a great week, and I'll talk to you again real soon. So I'm going to spoil the mystery here. This voicemail came in before last week's Weird Wednesday, and Jeff is right. The Joy didn't know what they were going to do yet. They played Monster Roulette, and the movie that was drawn out of the Mystic Pumpkin was the movie War of the Gargantuas, which is a movie that I've seen before, so on the one hand, I'm bummed that I missed it and I couldn't make it to that weird Wednesday. On the other hand, it's a great movie, and I'm glad that a bunch of people got a chance to see it at one of the coolest theaters around. As far as The Lost Boys go, you know, I haven't watched it in a while. It's probably been... I don't know, nearly eight years at the very least. I think the last time I actually watched it was back when I was doing the zombie podcast that I used to do, and I was still going to Horror Hound Weekend, uh, that convention, somewhat regularly. I guess I went to three or, I guess only three, so I don't know how regularly that is. But Corey Haim was going to be there, and I wanted to watch it before then. And since Corey Haim has since passed away, if you look at when that happened, can kind of use that to maybe go back to figure out when I last saw The Lost Boys. The Lost Boys is directed by Joel Schumacher, who, come on, didn't really do a great job with the Batman franchise when he took over for Tim Burton, and has had other issues since with some of the other movies he's made. But The Lost Boys, I mean, it holds up as a 19... It feels like a 1980s vampire movie. Is it 1980s? Yeah, it's 1980s, 87, I think. And I like the Monster Hunter aspect of that. Of course, I haven't seen the two follow-ups to The Lost Boys, where it's more about the Frog Brothers doing their thing. Just didn't have a lot of interest in kind of revisiting the franchise when those finally came out. I'm glad you got a chance to see it. And to see it at the drive-in, that would have been super cool, man. Super cool. In addition to Corey Haim and running into him at a Horror Hound weekend where, to be honest, I was kind of a jerk. Um, <laughs> I have also met Diane Weist, who plays the mother in that movie. 
she used to live, and I don't, she may still, I don't know, but she used to live in Montana. And I used to work at a video store in Livingston, Montana. And she was one of the local celebrities that used to come in all the time. Dennis Quaid was another one. Uh, Greg Kinnear was somebody else who was local who used to come in every once in a while. And of course, Margot Kidder as well. And I think I may have even talked about that when she passed. But Diane Weiss was really cool, very sweet, had that super sweet smile that you know her for. She actually had her daughter with her at the time, and I was trying to play it cool and be really cool with the daughter. I, I assume it was a daughter, maybe granddaughter, I don't know. But I was trying to talk to the daughter or the granddaughter just to kind of make her feel welcome, because I figure that if she goes out in town with Diane Weiss, Diane Weiss probably gets all the attention. I wanted to give attention to the kid. Well, I tried to engage with the kid during the entire transaction. Hey, can I look up your account? What's your phone number? Can I have your name, please? She was very, very shy. And then Diane Weist wanted to help her out. And, and I wasn't having it, man. Okay, I was kind of oblivious. But she said, well, I'm Diane Weist. And I looked at her and I said, well, I know who you are. I want to know who she is. Very rude and matter of fact. You know what? I'm convinced that if you guys and gals knew me before Monster Kid Radio or maybe even before I started podcasting, you probably wouldn't have liked me very much. Just saying. Anyway, Jeff, thanks for calling in, man. <laughs> That's a long-winded answer. Let's go into an email. And actually, I'm going to read this email because it's a longer one, which is awesome. And I want to get to it here on the show, but I'm not going to ask Brenda to read it. I'm sorry. It's just she's not feeling 100% either. So I'm going to do it right now. Greetings, Derek. Last night, I was thrilled beyond words when I saw on the Monster Kids Radio Facebook page that this week's epic podcast was going to showcase a discussion centered around Dracula AD 1972. However, I was already in the midst of downloading the sound file when the horrifying thought abruptly came over me. Oh no, what if they wind up not liking it, a film which I've so long adored. With apologies, I must have momentarily forgotten something you had said at some point in one of the many, many wonderful podcasts I've binge-consumed during recent months. Why would MKR bother to showcase a movie about which we don't have good things to say? Why, indeed, my fears were entirely unfounded as things turned out. Nonetheless, as most died-in-the-wool classic horror fans are all too aware, this movie has rather a polarizing effect upon our esteemed fandom community. Some love it beyond measure, and some absolutely hate it, and I'm going to go ahead and apologize here. I'm not 100%, and my throat's a little iffy, so if I sound like I have a cold or I'm kind of swallowing my words, that's why. Thankfully, the conversation was delightfully reverent and celebratory toward the movie, and I could simply relax and enjoy this very welcome Monster Kids Love Fest. Yours and Alistair's conversation hit a lot of the requisite high points, and it was a massive pleasure to have heard. There I was, a veritable fly on the MKR studio wall, just the way I like it, horror hound hermit that I am. As for my humble part, I can somewhat understand the bitter disappointment harbored by the naysayer crowd, if only because of their favorite argument that Hammer's Dracula really ought to exist in the purest of gothic settings, or surroundings is actually what you wrote. I also happen to be intuitively drawn to horror as it is depicted within the gothic tradition pretty much across the board as a missteeped castle grounds dwelling genre within a much larger genre. Gothic flicks rule, baby! It represents my own personal, darkly enticing, haunted landscape. That being said, in stark contrast, I also seem to have quite a pronounced fondness for films and TV of the early 1970s, specifically centered around London, which I have long labeled as the unquestionably faddish, conspicuously waning 
mod period. From the prevailing vibes, the bygone trappings, the hairstyles, and the distinctively outlandish fashions, I quite wholeheartedly latched on to so many of the productions depicting that time period, as popularly exhibited in television programs like The Persuaders, with Roger Moore and Tony Curtis, and Brian Clemens' star-studded thriller mystery anthology show, just to name a few. Therefore, the concept of Hammer execs actively casting a Dracula adventure within this distinctively vibrant pop culture era very definitely appealed to me. Back in those days, I was poised to graduate from high school when the theatrical trailer for Dracula AD 1972 first made its round in my regional TV market, and the seeds of my adoration for the whole idea of this film can be rightfully traced to my initial glimpses of that ad campaign. When I eventually saw the movie for myself, I was not only struck by that utterly extraordinary opening fight sequence— wherein Lee's Dracula and Cushing's Van Helsing and or their stunt doubles lived their final action-packed moments in the familiarly florid past the classically drawn historical period of their much-celebrated origins. What a memorable edge of our seats beginning, to be sure. After that, yes, I fully admit that we are sort of juringly transitioned to a much more modern time frame, a turbulent time of the youth movement versus the establishment, a time of experimentation with sex, drugs, and gender identity, a time of stone ground for pity's sake. <laughs> Even I have to confess, I'm always quietly grateful when that party cratcher sequence come to an end and the camera's eye is permitted to wander into other corners of that long lost social scene. Okay, I'm going to interject here real quick with something that I realized while I was editing last week's show and I meant to comment on it, but it was such a long show. I didn't want to put any more in that I didn't have to. I know that at one point at the beginning of the conversation about the movie, I said something about how that sequence seemed out of the blue and didn't seem to fit. But as I continued to talk with Alistair about the film, I go on and on about how that scene establishes characters and how it sets up Johnny Alucard as kind of above it all and all that. So hardly is it really out of the blue and have nothing to do with the film. It has everything to do with the film. So I, I know I kind of misspoke there, maybe misrepresented or hadn't really even thought it through. So anyway, back to the email. By the way, one of the most rewarding moments of your discussion was when it was pointed out that both Bram Stoker's novel and Universal's film adaptation of Dracula wove a tale of a centuries-old undead count thrust into an updated or contemporary setting. And where were the detractors back then, huh? There were none. An excellent point. Then again, it's equally true that many of us have enthusiastically registered our approval and enjoyment of numerous other similar vampire time-shifting tales the original Dark Shadows being principal among them. As we have so often been told, vampires live for centuries, they are eternal, unless they happen to meet a very specific set of terminal circumstances, so why must they be expected to remain exclusively within one special time period? Sure, the Gothics are wondrous when they're produced well, but it's likewise viable to perhaps expand outside of those constraints and look to other eras and scenarios. But hey, does that mean that I want to see Dracula in space? Or, um... No. To all things, there are reasonable limits, and I'm going to cut back in here. I want to see Dracula in space, or specifically, I want to see Dracula, Dracula in, in space. space! Anyway, as for the Dracula portions of the film, it occurs to me that the storyline was very cautious to always depict Lee's resurrected count within the exceedingly moody confines of that decrepit-slash-derelict church setting. The crumbling stone walls, the rodent-infested ruins, the spiderweb-draped corners, the shadow-engulfed backdrop amid long-neglected cemetery grounds, all of which best suits the thoroughly sadistic rituals held by our reigning blood-sucking prince of darkness. Throughout Dracula's much-advertised entrance into this modern expanse, 
never does he actually venture outside of those carefully sustained atmospheric surroundings. And for that reason, I feel that the Good Count's overall gothic integrity largely remains intact. One has to mindfully go stepping into this fenced-off, condemned shambles of a churchyard and structure in order to formally engage or confront Dracula. So, in that way, I feel like the film story very much plays it safe, despite all the advertising hype, which might try to suggest something else, while continuing to offer Christopher Lee in surroundings not too terribly unlike those harking back to Taste the Blood on Dracula. And a comment on that, <laughs> when he does go outside the church, is when Van Helsing gets him, stakes him pushes him down with a shovel. So, yeah, the church was kind of his safe place. And that might be one of the reasons why I like this movie better than The Satanic Rites of Dracula, because in Satanic Rites, he is out of that decrepit church environment. Not that I dislike Satanic Rites. I love it, but not as much as this one. Okay, back to the email. Furthermore, the biggest reason why I can't help but embrace this Hammer classic is that it finally reunited those legendary icons of British horror, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, Truly a dynamic pair, two vastly talented gentlemen who were always completely amazing on their own, but once brought together, they constituted all that was most enticing and enthralling about genre cinema of a certain age. Not since the film partnership of Karloff and Lugosi has a silver screen alchemy so astonishing and wonderful been achieved. Every time that they shared the screen was a genuine event worth saving, but the Dracula Van Helsing offerings were ever more special unto themselves. And as a side note, it's interesting to note that the 1973 Amicus film, and now the screaming starts, wherein Peter Cushing once again shared the screen with Stephanie Beecham, although the dynamics between the characters were quite a bit different than in Dracula AD 1972. In any case, there are several other notable routes that could be traveled in order to fully evaluate this movie. The whole Johnny Alucard aspect of things, for example. But in short, I simply wanted to share my general attitude toward a film, which I will willingly acknowledge tends to inspire vastly divergent viewpoints, pro and con. I respect the other camp's opinion. I'm not here to try to change anybody's mind. I only wanted to express my own point of view, my own feelings on the matter. Thank you for hearing me out. Many sincere thanks to you, Derek, for spotlighting such a marvelous genre favorite of mine and so many others out there during this week's MKR extravaganza. And here's wishing you and Brenda a very happy Halloween. And that email came from Steve, also known as Gothling1955, and he's a local Oregonian. To, well, he's not too local. He's over 200 miles away from me, but he's a fellow Oregonian nonetheless. And there is one bit of email here that I skipped. It's just a paragraph, or a few sentences. This is what I'm going to have Brenda look at because I want to have somebody else tell her to watch a particular film. Anyway, you know, I know I interjected a few times while reading this email, Steve, and I love this film. I really do. I love everything about this movie. I, I even love the Stone Ground stuff. Yeah, it left me cold the first time I saw it. But, you know, there's just something about this movie that is magical. I adore it. I love the music. I love Peter Cushing's outfits as Van Helsing. I would love to go hang out with that Van Helsing and the inspector and go on adventures with them fighting monsters. Somebody posted on Facebook about a year or so ago a mock-up of an opening credit sequence for an NBC Mystery of the Week-style TV series called The Van Helsing adventures or was it chronicles either way what they did is they took clips from this film and then re-edited it together to make it look like the opening of a tv movie or a series i'll try to find that and put it in the show notes because it's a facebook video i, I don't know if i'll have as much luck but we'll, we'll try fingers and tentacles crossed 
I don't like to talk about movies that I don't like here on the show. And even if it's a movie that I dislike, I try to find something to enjoy about the film overall. And, you know, it's not worth getting in a fight over, you know, is this movie better than that movie? But, you know, I have no problem pointing out some of the positives and maybe asking or, or encouraging people to re-examine a film and see what they think about it after giving it another chance. So, you know what? If you're not a big fan of Dracula 1972 AD, give it another shot. It just came out on Blu-ray. It looks awesome. And if nothing else, like I said earlier, Johnny Alucard, that man is too cool for school. Okay, so this change in audio quality means that I've shifted microphones. I'm Brendan's now in front of the main computer ready to join us for feedback. How you doing, hon? I am okay. I told people that uh, you're not feeling very great either. Uh, this has been kind of a rough week that I wasn't feeling well and you weren't 100%. So I tackled some of the feedback. I hope that's okay. Of course. Of course. So I just got done reading this email from Steve, but there's something in the paragraph there at the very end, breathlessly. To eventually hear what Brenda thinks of Dracula's daughter. Yeah. I know such things are he hectic for you both. No pressure. Although it'll be quite fascinating to hear of her overall reaction. Such a splendid film, truly the last of Universal's spellbinding horror offerings from that first movie cycle of the 1930s. So now it's not just me saying you need to watch Dracula's Daughter. Now it's a listener. And you're not going to let the listeners down, are you? Are you? <laughs> she... Speechless? Nothing to say? I really do think you'd enjoy it. So at some point, maybe. All right, so we have three emails. To go over still at the beginning of that document that's on the screen there. Hi, Derek. Hi. I'm looking forward to tomorrow's MKR, even if the segment on Dracula's ghost is postponed. I hope you feel better soon. I asked my Amazon Echo to play MKR, and it cheerfully complied. I recorded the exchange in case it would amuse you. <laughs> I recently started listening to the Nashicast, having heard of it on your podcast. Eventually, I was convinced to buy the Shout Factory set of Nashy Blu-rays. I don't know if you've seen The Hunchback of the Morgue or heard Rod and Troy's commentary track. They point out that the movie seems to be a mashup of lots of other movies, plus an unexpected Lovecraft reference as the story reaches its climax. It seemed to me upon first viewing of the film that the whole thing seemed to be a reworking and extrapolation of the vampire bat, told from Herman's viewpoint, and de-emphasizing the police and town council elements. At the very least, the movie depicts what would have happened if the harmless blood lufa from Vampire Bat had been allowed to grow much larger. Thoughts? More later, hoping everything improves, especially health, at the Cook residence. <laughs> There's blood lufa. That, so that's, that's Paul Curtis, who was the person on this week's show. Yes. It, you remember when we were talking about the blood lufa, right? Because you were throwing well, yeah. in comments about that we should get some. I was just going to say that now. And fill it with red soap. I'm a genius. You are I was going to say, <laughs> we need to get lufas. And some red non-dying soap product <laughs> and put that soap product in the middle. Use it to squeeze it and some blood comes out. It's a blood loofah. Good for your skin. Uh, he did send me the recording of him asking his Echo to play MKR. I am not going to play the recordings here on the show because if somebody's listening to it out loud and they happen to have an Echo or Alexa device, 
I don't want to mess with that when, <laughs> but I do think it's awesome that you can listen to Monster Kid Radio through TuneIn on your Amazon device. That's awesome. Yes. Did it say just searching for? It just started playing my show, the most recent episode. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, that's fun. I'm surprised I haven't heard you try it. Echo, play Monster Kid Radio podcast. Getting the latest episode of Monster Cat Radio. Here it is from iHeartRadio. <laughs> Echo, <laughs> stop. Monster Cat Radio. So it occurred to me that I just said I wasn't going to play Paul's audio. I wondered. Because I didn't want to throw off any Echo devices. But then I just up and did it myself. I wondered. And I wonder if I'm just not saying the right keywords because I have no idea what Monster Cat Radio is. Well, it's jivey music, clearly. Which, I, I mean, I kind of like. It was fun. Yeah. Okay. This is the best podcasting <laughs> ever. Aren't you glad that you're getting this instead of a conversation about Dracula's ghost? <laughs> Uh, no, Dracula's Ghost we're going to get in November. If Dracula's undead, can he really have a ghost? It's a really cool movie. Trust me. But can he have a ghost? <sighs> well... Is it a blood-sucking ghost? It's got to be the most irritating haunting ever, because he has no, like, physicality, so he can't suck your blood. He's just constantly trying to attach to your neck. Hmm. When he poltergeists out, does he just, like, throw your raw beef from the fridge? <laughs> what? Why? Because he's pull, like moving things around. What does he care about? Oh, I see. Get the okay. <laughs> I'm not 100. percent It took me a long time to connect the dots on that one. Sorry. No, it's my fault. I'm a like, little why, off. I'm why a little would a ghost throw a hamburger at somebody? I don't understand. <laughs> not at somebody. He's just getting it out. I get it now. Easy access. Ooh. Sorry. No, it's my bad. <laughs> Hi, Derek. Hi. Thanks for the Dracula AD 1972 episode, one of my all-time top 10 favorite movies. Yes. It inspired me to dig out one of my most prized possessions, the original editing script, complete with James Needs' fingerprints, edit marks, deleted lines hashed out with a ballpoint pen, changed scenes on different colored paper, changed lines economically taped over, avoiding the high cost of a new sheet of paper. And there's a, le a smiley, cryy face in parentheses. I had the opportunity to get the editing script for Demons of the Mind at the same time, but 30-ish years ago, I couldn't afford both. I did get the script covers only from the unfilmed Vlad the Impaler and Vampirella. Wow. Vampirella? That's what you said, right? I think I said Vampirella. It's like a soda. <laughs> Vampirella sarsaparilla? Yes. What does a vampirilla sarsaparilla taste like? It's just a vampirilla. It's uh, red peppermint ice cream in your in your dark cola. What? Why? Why? Why peppermint? Oh, because I thought that was red flavored ice cream. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna go grenadine, you know, but that's just a cherry coke. So never mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although maybe I'll start calling cherry cokes vampirillas now. <laughs> okay, so where were we? <laughs> Script covers only from Vlad the Impaler and Vampirella, but they are somewhere in one of dozens of boxes of movie memorabilia, and it might take some time to find them. I'm sending you a few pics for you to drool over. Feel free to share them if you like. Take care. Brian OKC. So, 
So you put those on the site? I, I will be putting those in this week's show notes. Can we talk about the danger of having so much movie memorabilia? I guess it's not really a danger. It's just that you can't have it all out. And I was about to say, Brian, if you find yourself running into that problem, if you need somebody to oh. just hold on to that script. In another box. I'd be happy in another to, home. <laughs> I'd be happy to make my home open to it. I mean, if if you need space and just need to, to you know, temporary relocation, I'm <laughs> no, just saying we don't even have enough room for your shush, stuff. Shush! It's just going to go in another box. It's not my stuff. It's, and then it's when Brian's he, stuff. When he asks for it back, you're going to be like, "Oh, oh, what box?" I'll be like, "Who is this? Wrong number. Wrong number." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that that was awesome. Actually, that's very very cool. Yeah, it, I it's would amazing. Imagine it would be easier to get my hands on Hammer stuff than Universal stuff like that just because of the era involved. But I still can't imagine it be affordable for us right mm-hmm. now. So, man, that's awesome. And I totally understand not being able to get everything, you know, getting the Demons of the Mind stuff either. Oh, yeah. Only having to pick one. Yeah. <laughs> I would, you picked the right movie. Yes. So, first I need to thank you for my recent road trip. I was lurking on your website when I noticed you had a listing for different classic monster movie showings, and they were doing a Hammer Double feature a mere two-hour drive from my house. What is a monster kid to do? I called out of work and jumped in the car. (laughs) Yes! Hopefully boss doesn't listen. (laughs) I drove to the Carolina Theater in Durham, North Carolina, for an afternoon of Horror of Frankenstein and Scars of Dracula. I grabbed some popcorn from the bored guy at the counter and entered the theater. I was the only one there through both movies. Hmm. It was a little sad, but also very awesome. I had the whole place to myself for a Hammer double feature. Also, nobody to say you were there to your boss. Oh, good point. No witnesses. Two hours away. Very important. (laughs) You know. You're two hours away. You might be spotted. So I can't tell if that's a good thing or a bad thing that you got to see it all by yourself in a giant theater by yourself with nobody bothering you or you're all alone because nobody has taste. Yes. It's sad in that way, but fantastic in that nobody else's untimely reaction or chit chat or popcorn crunching is going to interrupt you. I get very self-conscious when I'm having popcorn at a movie and there aren't very many people there because it means I'm more likely to be heard. Yes. And I know that's stupid because none of us are really having loud conversations anyway. I just feel like the extra people there kind of deadens the space a little bit more. And, or or maybe it's less likely that people realize it's me that's just mowing down. <laughs> anyway, you know who probably wasn't happy about this whole thing? I know there's more to the email, but the person who probably wasn't happy about him being there by himself was the poor projectionist who's like, oh, man, somebody showed up. I actually have to go do something now. <laughs> I can tell you from my experience working at movie theaters in the past, if nobody showed up, we didn't run the movie. Oh. You know, so it was like a couple free hours. Oh. Well, good job putting that person to work, <laughs> keeping employment going keeping strong in, in North Carolina, <laughs> doing your part. It was a great experience. Thanks for the heads up. I learned about your shows during Monster Bash. My dad and I have been going every June. I've dived into your episodes at random looking for movies that I've already seen. But I'm saving down place episodes until I rewatch the movies. I've seen many of them in the past, but I decided that I wanted to watch the whole Hammer catalog. Woo! I've printed out the most complete list I could find. Now I'm eight movies in. I've got a long way to go. Anything else? Oh, I just listened to the MKR episode with the three greatest vampire hunters. Oh, okay. Okay. So, 
One, Van Helsing, Peter Cushing. Sure. Two, Carl Kolchak. Yeah, the Night Stalker stuff, man. Well, he's not the Night Stalker, but... Yeah. Darren McGavin. Yeah. Three, Peter Vincent, Roddy McDowell. Oh, from Fright Night. And I guess Fright Night, too. Honorable mention, both Kronos and Grost from Captain Kronos. Okay, Carla, too. <laughs> Quincy Harker from Marvel's Tomb of Dracula. All those great choices you guys made on your show that I hadn't thought of until you mentioned them, especially Vampire Hunter D. You looked at me. That I, I'm not Vampire Hunter D. I do call myself D sometimes, but I'm not Vampire Hunter D. Okay. Just okay. Like, just, just so you Phew, secret cover almost blown. All right. Keep up the good work. I'm looking forward to seeing you at the bash again in June. I've got hammer autographs to get. Michael T. That's going to be awesome. The uh, June bash is going to be amazing. The uh, Vampire Hunter episode, I believe it was Frank Schildener and I. We talked about our top three Vampire Hunter, favorite Vampire Hunters. What about you, Brenda? Who are your top three favorite Vampire Hunters? Otto. Otto. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You know some. Who do I know? You know who Peter Cushing is, right? Sure. Peter Cushing. You win. Okay. You win. The, you win. We can stay married. Oh, that's my prize. Yes. <laughs> You're so lucky. <laughs> blessed. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> I'm so excited to have won this contest. Uh, so even though we're not feeling 100%, we did manage to watch, what, three or four episodes of The Haunting of Hill House yesterday? <laughs> Oh, yeah. That's because we weren't feeling great. (laughs) Yeah, we just kind of zoned out on Netflix. Yes. Now, you haven't seen the original The Haunting. Mm -mm. But we have seen the 1990s version. That was our very first movie date. It was our first movie date. And you ran away at the end because we were supposed to go with groups of friends. The movie scared me. I just just called you to let you know there was one for free because it was a very specific interest you had. And uh, neither of our groups of friends actually showed up and... We watched it, and at the end, you ran away like I was going to eat your head off. You, like, literally almost ran. Like, okay, gotta go, bye. Well. I gotta go right. And I, I was like, oh, Lord, that just makes this so much more awkward. I, so I said this earlier in the episode, that if people knew me over 10 years ago, or maybe even less than that, probably wouldn't have liked me very much because I was very awkward inadvertently rude so let me just point out that we've been married 18 years so uh-huh. are we talking more like 20 years ago i guess so huh? <laughs> 25 years ago God, has it been that long yes God, it feels like forever yeah you it oh, went, that's not funny anymore <laughs> it's um i don't know if you were <laughs> inadvertently rude you just had different priorities I was inadvertently rude. I wasn't a very good person at some points in my life. I know this. And it's okay. I'm I'm better now. You're better now? You made me better. No. You you fixed me, honey. Oh, that's weird. No, you fixed me up good. I'm I'm a good person now. Was that before or after the coffee date that I decided we weren't gonna be a thing? <laughs> it was after, right? Yeah. And I had only called you just to say, Hey, by the way, did you know this movie is free? For good reason. It's free. It brought us one step closer to our ultimate destiny, honey. (laughs) That you ran away from. And I was like... I didn't run very long. I mean, you you snagged me eventually. (laughs) 
<laughs> so if you can't tell, we don't have a lot of positive thoughts about that film, although I do know that some people do. Dominique in particular really enjoys it. And she's made some pretty good points about the film, and specifically uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones's performance, spot on. That said... I still have a lot of problems with the movie. I wonder if we should rewatch it or if we ever rewatched it, it would presage the ending of our relationship. No, just make us stronger. I wouldn't be nearly as scared watching it a second time and wouldn't feel the need to run away. <laughs> you, were, you ever think about that? that you were wasn't, scared you know what I was me. running from? It was the movie? Uh-huh. I mean, really, one can only take so much Owen Wilson getting scared by CGI ghosts. <laughs> or Liam Neeson, even. I'm saying, man... <laughs> so compared okay. to that film what do you think of what we've seen in the Netflix i don't series? even remember a lot of that film because instead i remember just the awkwardness of the two of us being in the theater together and not our friends after we had had a coffee and i was like he'll be an okay friend <laughs> yeah i kept thinking should i hold her hand should i have <gasps> around her i just didn't know I don't know how I would have reacted. Good thing I didn't. Because <laughs> you, it would have changed everything. You spent our first oh, date no. talking about how to make blood packs out of condoms <laughs> for your movies, but like not in a general way, in a very detailed, <laughs> ongoing method. Of explanation. You, you forgot the weed sprayer, though. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That you'd fill with blood as well, not just weed spraying in general. I mean, no, don't right. get weird. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I paid for the coffee, which it turns out was a good thing because you didn't think we were going to spendy coffee. You thought we were going to Denny's to drink cheap coffee because that's all I could afford. Mm, I'm so glad I, I was paid. all my money on non-lubricated condoms and fake blood supplies. <laughs> So then we were stuck in a movie theater together, and it was so uncomfortable. Yep. <laughs> so I don't remember a lot about that movie, honestly. Okay. But this is so much better. So I have mixed so thoughts on what we Okay. What are your mixed thoughts? What's wrong with you? And I think, and I'm going to bring up Dominique again, I think she kind of nailed it. I've been really kind of struggling with what my issue is with these reboots, okay? Because mm. this isn't a remake, this is a reboot in that it just took some names and then ran with it. If you're going to be a reboot, just make something new. Just call it something else. It doesn't have to be The Haunting of Hill House. It could be The Haunting of Are you saying- Smith House with seven characters, two of which don't appear in the first film, the original film. And I can't remember the novel. It's been so long. That said, I think the one episode in the funeral home oh. was spot on technically so well done yes so well done i think the acting is pretty solid i still question casting two different actors to play the same man just young and old virgin oh well well, there's so much other special effects going on with the ghosts and all that they could have just put some makeup on henry thomas to make him look old yeah but that doesn't always work very well no it just i it's because i'm in it i mean into these movies i know there's a difference between henry thomas and Mm. The other guy whose name I'm forgetting, Timothy, whatever the heck his name is, mm. he used to shoot a TV show here mm. and was in the dark half. Timothy H? I don't, I don't know. I like the method of storytelling where 
you're not exactly sure where in time mm-hmm. this next story is mm-hmm. because it kind of bounces between following the lives of certain members of these families. And then you realize, oh, it's building up to this. I see exactly when she's going to come running out of the funeral home and over to the door. And, oh, this is where we are in the story. This is how things are meshing and, and crossing over. So it's a different family members' perspectives of what's happened. Mm-hmm. I'm not burdened by previous movies or remakes mm-hmm. so that doesn't affect my viewing sure of it i i do like a lot of it um mm-hmm. i just have a few hang-ups here and there if i divorce it from everything that i know haunting wise i have a much easier time with mm-hmm. it which you know let's be honest a lot of the people watching this haven't seen the original film haven't read the first book the original book have you read do you even know it's based on a novel I assumed so because yeah. I think you said something earlier that leaned towards that. Yeah, it's, it's written by Shirley Jackson, which is, I mean, one of the best haunted house novels, period. I think Stephen really? King freaking loves it. Really? Um, yeah. We should see if it's at least on Audible or something yeah. so we can listen to it. Uh, and I'd like to revisit it, too. It's been way too long. Yeah. And I know that I've seen The Haunting from 63, I think, but I can't remember anything about it. So that house is huge. Yeah. Huge, huge, huge. I like the production design a lot. I like the way the house looks a lot. I actually really like some of the ghosts. Yeah. The one whose feet didn't touch the floor. There are some really neat moments in there. There's a lot of, and I I feel like it's not really just ticking off the boxes like a lot Mm, of mm -mm. so-called horror remakes or reboots do. I feel like this one really does kind of get into what can be scary and this is what we're going to do. Yes. And I appreciate those moments. And I do think the construction of it hit its peak, at least what we've seen so far, in that funeral home sequence where there's like maybe five camera cuts total. I think that was kind of like the, the pinnacle. This is the good stuff. I wasn't a big fan of the next episode, and who knows what's on it. We have three episodes to go. Wait. I, I didn't actually, Remind me what the next one was? I didn't, well, it was the aftermath of the funeral. It was the actual funeral itself and, oh. and all that. And the one brother took off and all that. But I, I don't actively dislike it. I just don't think it was nearly as strong as that one episode. That one episode is like, if you had to pick out one episode of this show to put into a future box set of scary television mm-hmm. shows, that would be the one. Because there's some great moments of like time changing. Yeah. There's some great technical stuff with the different ages of the characters when the father's seeing them as young versus old. Really neat stuff. Really cool. Yeah. I feel like it's sort of a challenge for anything that's a series when you have a really standout episode, whatever follows is going to feel a bit dull. Sure. And, you know, it's not going to live up to the rest of it. I really appreciate how the issues they had when they were kids specifically the really young ones and not Mm -hmm. not being believed about seeing things has affected their adult life yeah and that they brought those issues over Mm -hmm. yeah I, i and i think the actors all did a pretty good job of trying to mimic either the kids or the kids mimicking the adults and even the young versus old father whoever set that role up. Yes. Um, the other person did a really good job of taking those characteristics over. Yes. So I don't know who was cast first or performed first, but whoever made those choices made them for two actors and it worked. Yes. Um, even though I know they're two different people. <laughs> I'm tired though of the one who wears gloves. She's always leaning against a wall. 
<laughs> like, it's almost like, oh, okay, she's settled into leaning against a wall. We're going to have a conversation scene. I like her. She's one of my favorite characters well, in like this whole I like her, thing. too, but... That actress is actually married to the director of the series, I believe. Mm. And he's worked with her before. A couple of these people have worked with each other before. Uh, the person who plays the mother was in Gerald's Game, that Stephen King adaptation. Yes. Really She's so beautiful. She uh-huh. is so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I've always, I've always kind of liked Carla G. I'm sorry. She's, she's hot. She, um, you know, what's interesting is I find her so beautiful and her eyes are so expressive that I don't think of her in terms of hot. I just think like ethereal and beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. She's awesome. And she's a great actress. She is a freaking great actress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few other people on this were actually in Gerald's game as well. So it's interesting to see them all kind of yeah. come together again. Uh, and, the girl who grows up to be Theo, we saw her in uh, some movie with Chris Evans where she is a super smart girl who doesn't adjust well to being put in public school. And we really liked her in that. And she's in this as well. Hmm. Um, just I think all the performances are pretty solid. It's just a few storytelling things that I struggle with. But like I said, that one episode was just. Yeah. I'd go back and rewatch that one episode again when we're all said and done with this. That's the one episode I go back and reread. Although, okay. Reread. Reread, rewatch. The one issue I have, spoiler, it's a wooden door. You have drills and saws so, and crowbars. But here's the thing. It's got to be more than a wooden door, keeping it closed. The walls around that door are wood. I think here's the thing. It won't be open until it wants to be open. She didn't even try, man. Seems like he did. Every time they talk about it, they're like, oh, we just don't have a key. <laughs> you would think that if they tried to get into it any other way, that'd be the first thing that comes out. Not, oh, we don't have a key, so we can't get in there. Instead of, yeah, we tried to get in it, but we couldn't even burn the door down. I mean, come on. <laughs> you want them to take a flamethrower to it? Burn it down, man. Pull a Seth Rollins and burn it down. You don't get that reference. That's okay. No, but, but- <laughs> that means no more story. Well, true. Maybe that's that's the one thing I'm having issues with story-wise is that freaking door, that freaking room that they can't get in. Well, so initially, yeah, they didn't want to get in there. But now there's water pooling everywhere in the mm-hmm. house. They kind of need to get in there. They're starting to feel like maybe the house is malevolent and they're trying to get in. But it really feels like it isn't just the wooden door keeping them out. Right. It's the house. I just, I just want that exchange. I want to see that to make sh- – just to let me know that Henry Thomas and Carla – and I think her last name is Gudian. I don't know her last name. I'm sorry. It starts with a G. I just want to know that those two characters aren't freaking idiots and have tried everything other than, oh, no key. I guess we're not going in. You know, that, that's the only thing. I just want acknowledgement of that one You saw him try to spot. get in. What's that? You saw him try to get in. Four episodes, five episodes in, okay. he finally takes a crowbar okay. to it. And, and that's he only ran- because he's missing his daughter, right? Or no, the wife or something? No, 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 That was something different. Yeah, either yeah. way. I just want to see that one moment, that one exchange. And I suppose we still can't you know, because it's not... he threw himself any... against the door until his hand bled. Uh, but before... Yeah, just saying, okay. The story's being told in a nonlinear fashion. Yes. So I don't care if it's in episode 10. Have for me a moment where they're having breakfast and somebody says, yeah, I tried to drill on it last night. I didn't work. Just acknowledge that. Just give me something instead of, oh, no key. Okay. It bothers me. What else did Clearly. we... Clearly. <laughs> didn't we binge a different series? Maniac. 
Oh, yeah, that was really good. Which is pretty far removed from what we do here on MKR, yeah. but that was a good Netflix series, too, and really kind of got into that weird kind of mess with your head, borderline bizarro stuff, yes. but pretty good. Yeah, pretty I good. thought it was really good. The performances are solid. That's the thing. Really solid. Jonah Hill blew me away. I had no idea. And she was amazing, Emma Stone too. was great, too. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Good stuff. Yes. Okay. Um... We've probably recorded for ever, so. So. <laughs> how much? How long is this audio file? Uh, 30. Oh, that's not too bad. No. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up. Any um, Halloween messages for anybody since this is the last episode before Halloween, Brenda? Not that I can think of. Oh, I'm not being a Jaws guy at Captain Brody anymore. Yeah. We're supposed to be uh, Shark Week, and we had one shark. Actually, we had no sharks when it went out, and I was like, I'm okay. how, how does your office decide to do Shark Week for Halloween costumes? And, and then nobody's, nobody's a, shark? a shark. How'd that happen? That's what, what, are, what I are they was, doing? I think everybody who wasn't interested in being super involved or doing something super difficult went with Fisherman of some sort, because you kind of have those costumings around, or those pieces around. Then why did you all decide to do Shark Week? I know. what. <laughs> I know. Even the people who were pushing for Shark Week weren't sharks. Um, so I emailed out an email that said, I'm concerned with our dearth of sharks. I'll change my costume. <laughs> which I got to tell you, I know I'm not working right now, but if I'm working and I get a work email that just says I'm concerned with our dearth of sharks, I save that email. I print that email. I take it home and frame it. I do something with it. <laughs> you put it up that, in the office. That, that email is awesome. I'm concerned with our dearth of sharks. <laughs> so I will be a shark. And since then, we have two other sharks. Good. So there's three of us. We're going to have to be working hard. <laughs> Sharking around. <laughs> but the best thing ever is that the costume I ordered, I'm actually maxing out the volume a lot here, honey. Sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, the costume we ordered, well, we ordered a backup one. Man, it is hot because it's that foam stuff but the backup costume is a hammerhead shark you have to stuff like newspapers up in the head (laughs) and his two eye stalks are out to the sides and it looks so derping awesome so can we do this whichever shark costume you end up going with yeah can we take a picture and put you on the website as a shark sure excellent (laughs) excellent too bad sharks don't make noises they do bubbles but now i want everybody to have just like little bluetooth speakers everyone who's a shark just has a bluetooth speaker inside that plays Da-da. well you've got your phone we'll, well just put I've the jaw seam on your phone yeah, i've got this t- this headset but so people can't hear that i can play it out loud oh can you, even better then yeah so we'll get you the jaw seam <laughs> That's what jaw. That's what jaw sounds like. Or sharks sound like. Sure, that's totally what sharks sound like. Hey, when you watch the movie, you only hear it when a shark's doing something. <laughs> Here's the weird thing, though. <laughs> They're all like standing up sharks. It's not the right position. So, am I gonna like bend in half and just go up and down the aisles bent over so I look like a normal shark position? I think that would be painful and not a good idea for you. <laughs> and it won't look very shark-like. I want you to have that hammerhead shark costume so bad, and I hope it works so that you can just be like. Hey guys, <laughs> what's up? <laughs> we'll hang. Want to hang out? So uh, you're going to be working on Halloween, and Halloween will be the day of the virtual crash. So yes, that worked um, out well. That 
Yeah. Um, I don't know what time you're getting off that day, but I'll be doing movies when you get home. So you're welcome to join us. So how late does the crash go? I haven't decided yet. Stay tuned. Well, you don't have a choice, but I'm just saying to the listeners, stay tuned. I would like to have a choice. <laughs> what are you going to do? Go out and party or something in your shark With suit? With my shark suit. Go out with the other two sharks. And I'm just going to be a sad, sad hammerhead shark Aww. on the couch by myself. You can join us. <laughs> on the computer. You have an account on Rabbit TV. <laughs> you can pop in and say hi. I'm sure people would appreciate that. It'll be fun. I'll pick a movie that you... Maybe we'll do Dracula's Daughter. Just for you, hon. We'll talk about it. All okay. right. Uh, anyway. you, wait, you have to come get me. Wait, am I driving myself that day? I can. Because you got to be home for that. No, you're taking a Lyft or an Uber because I want you to ride in a Lyft or an Uber with the hammerhead suit. That sounds like a very useful way to spend our money. <laughs> you're not going anywhere anyway. I'm taking the... But I'll drive in my hammerhead costume. I don't know no, if that's a good kidding. idea, actually. That's a terrible, <laughs> terrible idea. And then I'll run a red light so we have a camera picture of it. <gasps> I know where the red light cameras are. You totally should. <laughs> That'll go on the website, too. <laughs> Tonight, the dead will walk, and you, unbeliever, will scream unheard. Stop! The Haunting. What do we really know of that other world of hauntings, of apparitions in the night, of the sinister powers of darkness? The Haunting was produced and directed by Robert Wise, the brilliant producer of West Side Story, and stars Julie Harris, Claire Bloom, Richard Johnson, Russ Tamblin. You cannot deny terror. You cannot look the other way. You have to face the supernatural. Face the chilling mysteries of forces you cannot understand or control. When the haunting holds you in its spell. The haunting. Young girls for old fools. And he takes in Dracula versus Frankenstein. Yesterday they were cold and dead. Today they're hot and bothered. No female is safe from their hideous plans as the prettiest captives are lured into the arms of artificially created men. There's no way out when dead beings must have live women. See Dracula versus Frankenstein, rated PG. If you've seen all the other horror films, this is for you. More horror, more screams, and more fright than your wildest nightmares in Frankenstein's Bloody Terror. An all-new super shocker filmed in Chillerama 70mm and gory color. Now meet the wolf monster, a slashing, inhuman creature who prowls by night for new victims. It's terror beyond your most fearsome imagination as vampires, using the powers of witchcraft, summon the hideous wolf monster. Don't miss Frankenstein's bloody terror. It's a super shock spectacle of hideous horror in Chillerama 70 and gory color. Rated GP. So before we get to all the business at the end of the show, there's actually another piece of feedback I forgot to talk about earlier. I'm going to let it go right here. Hi, Derek and fellow Monster Kids. My name is Jerry Green, and I'm a guy with a couple of comic book podcasts. 
One is Bat Books for Beginners, where we review Batman trade paperbacks, and the other is The Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about the weekly indie comics. In the excellent MKR episode with Alistair Hughes, Derek asked the Classic Five question, what prequel movie would you like to see? Alistair suggested he'd like to see a prequel to Dracula. It's a great answer. I would have said the same. Now, if you'd like an origin story for Dracula, I'd like to recommend you check out the comic book trade paperback, The Brothers Dracul. The Brothers Dracul is written by the excellent writer of horror and other things, Colin Bunn, with art by Mirko Kolak. It tells of the Dracul brothers, Vlad and Radu. The pair are very different. Vlad is the older, more serious of the two. Radu is the more compassionate brother. Their father's Transylvanian kingdom is invaded by the Sultan, and the two brothers are taken east as royal hostages. There, they learn of the creatures, the vampire. The thing that makes this book so engaging is the relationship between the two brothers. We have a pretty good idea of the endgame for Vlad Dracul, but these two very different people have a bond that survives all the chaos. I can't say that it has a happy ending, but the commitment of the two to each other is heartwarming. Also, having the vampires, which we're used to thinking of as a European, or at least Eastern European creature, originating from the more ancient Middle East before arriving in Transylvania, makes historical sense and gives the book a very different aura than I've been used to. Mirko Kolak's art is typically restrained except for the vibrant splashes of blood, which there's a lot of because it is a vampire story. Brothers Dracul is from Aftershock Comics and is due to be released on November 7th. However, Amazon has it listed as available on November 13th for $14.99 in the U.S. I'm sure you can find some art for this book online. Check it out and see if it's something you'd like. I appreciate you letting me share this book with everyone, Derek. This is Jerry Green from The Professor Frenzy Show wishing everyone a wonderful October season, which for me goes from October 1st to Thanksgiving Eve. Thank you. How cool is that? How cool is that? So I will make sure there is a link in the show notes for people to be able to pick up their own copy of The Brothers Dracul Volume 1. You can get it from Amazon. It's a little under $15. And if you use the link in the show notes, we get like five cents commission or whatever the Amazon affiliate payout is. I'll also make sure there are links for you to be able to pick up your own copy of The Vampire Bat on Blu-ray, as well as Alistair Hughes' book, Info Gothic, which is also now available on Amazon. So if you're here in the States, you don't have to worry about overseas shipping. You can order it straight from Amazon if you want to go that route. Of course, you can always find it at Talos Publishing's website as well. Check last week's show notes for that link. And uh, speaking of feedback, it occurred to me that I did not respond to anything Paul Nashy related that came up in the feedback section as well. I meant to bring it up, but man, I'm telling you, I'm still not feeling 100%. So things are kind of slipping my mind. Uh, the Paul Nashy stuff, I actually have started my Paul Nashy uh, voyage, I suppose you could call it. I did watch Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, and after Halloween, I'll probably be recording a short YouTube video about it, and then I'll be diving into the next film in the genre filmography for Paul Nashy. I'll give you a little bit of spoiler. I dug it. Dug it a lot. So here at the end of the show, I usually tell you about what's coming up next week, and I'll go ahead and tell you right now, I've got another new voice on the show next week. It'll be coming out on November 1st, so technically it's the day after Halloween, but, you know, we talk about monster movies all the time here on the show, and next week we're going to be talking about The Beach Girls and the Monster, a John Hall film. Dance, baby, dance, come and dance with me, hear the beat of the mountain sea. Ride, baby, ride, come and ride with me, let your feet go easy. 
do you make of this? Where does the other end go? It dumps into the ocean. It looks exactly like the South American Fantigua fish. I hope you can take one alive, Sheriff. I still believe that a human clawed that girl to death. The Beach Girls and the Monster. Starring John Hall, Sue Casey, and the glamorous Watusi dancing girls from Hollywood's famed Whiskey-A-Go-Go nightclub. Music by Frank Sinatra, Jr. You got a monster in the surf. Chicks, do you have a problem? You won't have after you meet the monster on the beach. If you see this ghoul, play it cool. Beauties in bikinis, laughing, singing, surfing, sinning. Beach party lovers making hey hey in the moonlight while the monster waits and watches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one will kill you. This is actually one I really like, and so does Karen Joan Kohodek. She is an author. She's also a fellow Robert E. Howard fan, so she and I had plenty to talk about. And you're going to hear that next week on the show. I do want to give everybody a heads up. I'm going to be going out of town actually on November 1st. I'm going to have all the assets with me so that I can edit the show and put it out as normal. However, it may be a little late because I'm actually going to be traveling on the 1st. It's not an all day thing. So chances are I'll be able to get most of it done. But you know, if it doesn't come out on November 1st, sit tight because it will be coming out on November 2nd. So Fingers and tentacles crossed, no other problems other than that. Now, that's all in November. It's still October. We still have to talk about Halloween. And Monster Kid Radio is doing the first annual virtual crash. I've talked about it a lot. I've actually posted a YouTube video about it as well, or at least a little teaser. Here's how it works. You need to set up an account at Rabbit TV, which is R-A-B-B dot I-T. And then once you do that... Let me know what your name is there, and I'll reach out to you from the Monster Kid Radio Rabbit TV account. We need to be friends, and the reason why is because on the morning of Halloween, starting around 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, I'm going to be showing movies in the Monster Kid Radio Rabbit TV channel that I've named the Interocitor. What movies am I going to show? Well... It's still undecided, but I can tell you there will be a universal monster movie in the mix. There will be a classic television episode from one of the horror anthologies that I love. There will be a color, low-budget, regional monster movie from the 60s. And I'm thinking about a William Castle film, but it's not 100% locked in. You're going to have to come by the Rabbit TV Monster Kid Radio channel to see what's up. And here's why we're doing this on Rabbit TV. You can have a live chat going the entire time, and I'm going to be there. I would love to meet up with you guys and gals and just chat it up while we're watching movies together. I know normally we don't talk in the movie theater, we don't talk while movies are going, but we're going to be on our computer, and I would love to interact with everybody in the chat room while we're watching the film. So again, it's Rabbit TV, which you just find by going to rabb.it. Of course, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. And yeah, I know I kind of teased that maybe Dracula's Daughter will be in the mix. That's not the one we're going to show because I really do want to have Brenda watch that with me at some point. And uh, yeah, we're going to hold off on that one. (laughs) 
If you're in the local area this weekend, I'd love to meet up with you at the Hollywood Theater where we can go and see Scream, Blackula Scream. That is happening Friday night at 9.45 p.m. And then the very next day at the Hollywood Theater, there will be a screening of the original Phantom of the Opera with a live organ accompaniment. I've never been to any of their live organ presentations, and they've done a handful over the years. This is going to be a treat for me, and I'm not going to be there by myself. I know Dominique Lamses and Chris McMillan will be in attendance as well. Also on Saturday, Saturday night in particular, I'll be going to the Fifth Avenue Cinema to take in one half of their Halloween double feature. The half that I'm going to see is The Mask, which is Canada's first feature-length horror film, at least that's what they're saying, I'm looking forward to this as well. It's going to be so much fun, and I would love to meet up with you. Now, I've already done a handful of Halloween events this year, and honestly, I didn't bring my recorder along. I am just going as somebody who's going to enjoy the movie. I'm not going to be, quote-unquote, at work. So I would love to meet up with you, and and I'm not going to shove a recorder in your face. I promise. (laughs) Put the mask on now. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing wrong with the projection, but you can't share the shock until you have the miracle movie mask. At showings of this motion picture, each patron will receive his own miracle movie mask. Then, but let's watch the scene again. Then you will lift your mask as he lifts his, and you will look through it with him into the weirdest nightmare world that man has ever dreamed or the screen has ever dared show. The new realm of horror that can only be seen through the mask. Here to tell you more is the supreme authority on all things weird. Initiate of the strange and mysterious. The world's greatest connoisseur and collector of masks. Mr. Jim Moran. I have seen wonders. I've traveled to the remotest corners of the globe. To dead cities. Through savage jungles to the inner sanctums of esoteric cults, the temples of exotic rituals, to tombs and caverns and palaces. The result, the most comprehensive collection of masks in the world. Some are works of art, some are astounding and horrifying, but nowhere in all my travels have I found a mask so absolutely remarkable as this mask the miracle movie fright mask, the mask that you will be invited to put on when you see the motion picture called The Mask. This is the mask that will open your eyes to such things as man has never dared imagine. The mask that will make you part of the sensations of the most staggering experience of your life. But be warned, the things that you will see when you put on this mask will surely take you to the very limits of your nerves and to the very boundary line of sanity. You can find links to everything that we talk about here on the show over at the website at monsterkidradio.net. You'll find links to our Facebook page. You'll find information about how to get a hold of us. You can email us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can call us and leave us a voicemail by calling 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. 
I'd love to hear what you thought about this episode or any of the previous episodes or what you'd like to hear in future episodes. Just call in and let me know what's on your mind because I'd love to include you in the show. Again, apologies to Craig Lamb Scott uh, for me not getting the Dracula's ghost conversation into this episode. It looks like this episode is going to run over two hours as it is. I will make it a point to make sure that episode comes out in November. So stay tuned for that. And of course, thank you to the Slop Tones for providing this week's song, which I'm going to start playing here in a minute after I remind you that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC and all original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. You can find the Slop Tones online on their Bandcamp page, sloptones.bandcamp.com, or you can even find them on Facebook. While this particular song, Siren, isn't available yet, they have plenty of music for you to go ahead and sink your ears into, or is it the other way around? Anyway, check out all their music and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to everybody next week, hopefully on Halloween in the virtual chat, otherwise on November 1st-ish. Ciao. (laughs) 